This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Hope you're having a wonderful, uh, what is it, Thursday. Awesome. It's a good day, folks. Lucky uh, to be alive, uh, having just driven through the Lamaze of uh, construction going on around BYU. You took a Lamaze class? Yeah. So mm-hmm. awesome. Such a great program for you today. Man, I got an interview that uh, we, we taped just a couple days ago. Incredible. You will not believe how much transportation is involved in making your iPhone. It will blow your mind. You mean like the guy that transports the iPhones to the Best Buy? That, that's one of the tiny things. But like the little battery inside had to have 50, 60 shipments to create a battery. Just to create the one little battery that then was then shipped to the place where they installed it in your phone. And then it was shipped again to the place where you bought the phone. And then on and on and on. But uh, the numbers... Exactly, are staggering. And today we're going to be talking about the magnificent, maddening, mysterious world of transportation. Door to door, what, that's the name of the book. And uh, it'll blow your mind. 500,000 miles, I think, total for one iPhone. And I would travel 500,000 miles. <laughs> Crazy. So, and you just think it's an iPhone, like no big deal. But the same thing is going on with your socks and your undies. And your shorts and your, and your shoes, all of these things. And none of us think about the transportation effects. Anyway, oh, fascinating interview. Up next, um, also today we're going to be covering um, a lot of the news, uh, maybe a little recap on what's going on. Holy cow, what a shooting that took place in uh, D.C. Tried to interrupt the congressional, I guess, uh, baseball game between Republicans and Democrats. Which is still going to happen on Thursday. Still happening. Tonight. I You're mean. not stopping it. President will not be there because of security reasons. Well, he's not really a sports fan either. Well, come on. He skipped opening Wrong. day. You wouldn't want to miss this. <laughs> he did skip opening day, but that was about throwing the ball at first pitch, but apparently he's got a good arm. So he says without demonstrating it. No, but apparently there's been videos of him doing it, right? Oh. But he, he's not like, you know, he's got a good arm, but for some odd reason... He didn't want to be put on the spot. That has nothing to do with the shooting. No, but it's but, just... Or does it? So that's going on, plus chaos again back in the Russia, the whole Russia discussion. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll hear news about that. So a lot to cover today, but first... Vlad held his uh, 15th annual TV special in Russia. Oh, did he? Where they do like the five-hour press conference. You can ask any question you want. They have people from all over the country and satellite links coming in with all kinds of crazy questions. What a great and, yeah. thing he does. You see the... Just offers all these answers. You see politicians asleep in the front row because they're going into the fifth hour of this TV show. Yeah, five hours is a long time. But if you do it once a year... He seems to enjoy it. Yet five hours is not a long time when you're binging your Netflix show. No, not at all. I mean, who couldn't do that every day? It's barely half the the whole series. Right, exactly. Uh, We'll get to all that fun. But first, let's get to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country we should worry about? The MedStar Washington Hospital Center releasing an update late Wednesday on Majority Whip 
what Stephen Scalise revealing that the congressman who was shot Wednesday morning during the practice for a baseball game remains in critical condition. In a statement, the hospital said Scalise uh, sustained a single rifle shot to the left hip with the bullet traveling across his pelvis, fracturing bones, injuring internal organs, and causing severe bleeding. He was transported to the Level 1 Trauma Center in shock. He immediately entered surgery, underwent an additional procedure to stop the bleeding. His condition is critical, the hospital said. He has received multiple units of blood transfusion. He will require additional operations. The hospital said that he will. they will provide periodic updates as his progress continues to improve. Mm. But uh, he's got some... Uh, some distance to go here before he's back on his feet. Wow! The president uh, visited him yesterday. I imagine a, a long line of people or uh, either they have visited or will visit to uh, wish him well. Uh, the U.S. Senate on Wednesday approved new sanctions to punish Russia for interfering with the 2016 election, a bipartisan legislation which passed with an overwhelming 97 to 2. Wow! There, it's almost agreement, full agreement. Slaps new sanctions on Russia, restricts President Trump from easing them in the future without first receiving congressional approval. So okay. they kind of handcuff the president. Handcuff the pre- that's fine. He can't do anything that maybe he was hinting towards. The deal was attached to a Iran sanction bill that is expected to pass later this week. Top Republican senators had initially wanted to give the White House space to try to improve U.S.-Russian relations, but ultimately decided talks with Russia have been moving too slowly. The only two senators to vote against the measure. Any guesses? You know uh, both of these names. They're not obscure. Uh, but they'd be very pro-Russia, apparently. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to bet Rand Paul. Yeah. And um, who else? Oh, uh, ran for president. McCain. No, uh, the one that... Uh, oh, from Texas. Senator from Texas. Cruz. Ted, Ted Cruz. No, but his good friend, Mike Lee. Mike Lee from Utah. Mike Lee voted against it. The sanctions measure uh, now will land on Trump's desk where he will either sign or veto the measure. He has not indicated. Why would Mike Lee vote for that? I don't know. <laughs> I found that kind of surprising. Okay. You can see Rand Paul. Uh-huh, he doesn't totally. think anything ever goes don't, far yeah, enough. Right. He wants to just eliminate every bill is, is just not good enough for him. So he votes sure. against it. Fox News has abandoned its fair and balanced slogan instituted by its founder and ex-CEO Roger Ailes, according to a Wednesday dispatch from the New York Magazine. The decision was made last August after Ailes' ouster by Fox News and because the phrase had been mocked. Uh, Fox News no longer fair and balanced. Another executive explained that the tagline was too closely associated with Roger Ailes. Uh, Additionally, uh, the reporter uh, found that per executives, the network's marketing strategy has shifted to its other slogan, most watched, most trusted. Hmm. I guess if you say something long enough. I think General Mills adopted the fair and balanced to go with their cereals. Yeah. A fair and balanced breakfast. General Mills. I liked the general more when he was like a lieutenant general, lieutenant colonel. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I think he was more humble when he was Private Mills. Yeah, Private Mills. What a guy that guy was. What else you got for us, And Sarah? finally, it's summertime, right? Yeah. Parents tend to find maybe some sort of summer camp or a mm-hmm. summer program for their teenagers to keep them kind of engaged, but also to have some fun. Sure. Kind of going, right? So two teenage boys, maybe they took this a different to a different level, I guess. What, I what did they Two do? Two teenager boys are safe and sound Wednesday after spending three cold and dark, no doubt harrowing days, lost in the catacombs between the street underneath the streets of Paris. Oh, really? 
According to the BBC, the two boys ages 16 and 17 were rescued early Wednesday following a four-hour effort by search teams with rescue dogs. They were taken to a nearby hospital, treated for hypothermia, though authorities say they were otherwise unharmed. The temperature in the pitch-black passageways is about 59 degrees under the streets of Paris. Oh, wow. The catacombs, which house the bones of approximately 6 million dead, form a 150-mile maze beneath the city. Only a small portion of the catacombs are open to the public. Partygoers and enthusiasts known as cataphiles have been known to access other tunnels through secret entrances. The people that are in the public... Tours that you can take yeah. in the certain portion they the, have open the to the public. Yeah. They say that everyone that goes in the public side of the catacombs never get lost. So oh. if you choose to go elsewhere, that's your own fault. Yeah, I mean, so. But how's that for a summer camp? Go hang out with six million dead you know, people. Dead people. <clears throat> but so they got they got lost. They got scared. Yeah. They and were they freezing. Got cold. Yeah. Wow. What'd you do for the summer? Yeah, that's, well, a, that's the word. I about I, died. That's an essay waiting to be written. I went winter camping. Yeah, like, do you remember when you did go winter camping? And I improperly activated the hand warmers, so I froze all night. Yeah. You got, you got to do it right. But you know what? Not everything's easy the first time. Well, it really should have been easy the first time. Yeah. I mean, all you had to do is read the instructions. Um, by the way, is anybody noticing the temperature in the studio? It was really hot when I walked in initially. Now it kind of feels a little cooler. I walked in. Jeff's shirt is off. He's got a towel around his head and right. his neck. He's sweating like a dog. Kind of I s- think Palakiko's behind this. Yeah, for sure. Palakiko loves a little hot sauna. Um, so apparently the experts, you know how uh, James Comey mm. wrote memos about his boss. He went in and then he, he, he met with Mr. Trump, President Trump, and then after he'd go write a memo right. about what they talked about. Well, the experts are suggesting you don't do this with your own boss. Really? Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's going to create problems for you psychologically as well as professionally. Mm. You got to be careful. It's just. Will you start trying to create a situation that would be more evidence to write are you trying to create a situation that becomes something at that it point? might yeah you might actually be creating they call it rehearsal so you could actually morph the idea into sometimes you know because memories aren't perfect right so psychologists say writing down memories is a form of what psychologists call rehearsal a way to retain information and solidify it into memory by repeating it and revisiting it but the technique has its drawbacks while you can strengthen your recollection of certain details by writing them out, the details you don't focus on can end up fading from your memory faster. Hmm. So whatever he didn't focus on, like, does he even remember what they ate? Hmm. It was probably a well-done steak with ketchup. Notice he never brought that up in the hearings. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I want it burnt with ketchup. So anyway, um, there's – they also recommend – I mean, in a way uh, – it automatically, and I guess if you're an investigative officer like the FBI, you might do it naturally. But with your own boss, you hmm. probably ought not be going in there in an effort to to catch or to investigate. But what if you're building a, a HR complaint against your boss? You need evidence. Yeah. You do need evidence. So Except okay. what happens when your boss finds out that you've been writing down all of these things. How's he going to find out? He has his vase. Really? He has his vase. I've been keeping documents. She finds these things out. Since my first day here. Really? 
<laughs> really? And until this moment, you didn't know. No, I did. Coworkers no. would have no idea. You just go sit no. at your desk no. and type. How Jackie would you know? Jackie Tataishi said she's been sending them to me every day. She doesn't know. She's gone. Yeah, she said, I know. She had to send me all the notes before she left. Anyway, be careful, because it does. it is a sign that you are in an unhealthy situation. I could see that it would put you as the worker trying to be motivated to get more evidence, more items that you mm-hmm. could write down that would be of substance. So you're trying to maybe manufacture something, trying to, trying to maneuver your boss into saying something that yeah. you could use against them. You could use it for other reasons, like journaling would be a great idea. It's a great way to get your anxiety out, stuff like that. But right. if just, you're making a case – then it's telling you that's telling you something, right? You're you're in a weird position, a precarious situation, right? Don't you? Uh, aren't you a big advocate for this for uh, couples? What? Like just write down everything, yeah. that your spouse has ever done, just in case. Pictures, videos, get everything you can. Yes, yeah. Then that way, in the divorce settlement, you'll have some firepower. Just combative scrapbooking is what you're recommending. <laughs> what a great way to live. <laughs> Just think about it. And then imagine yet you're doing that at work every day. And there's some interesting stuff like apparently um, Sessions didn't talk to Comey about any of this. Well, he had recused himself from – Well, I know, but if if, if you're meeting so. with the president and you're feeling uncomfortable about it, Comey should have said something to Sessions and Sessions should have said something to Comey. Right? This should have been... Well, unless he didn't trust him. Mm. Because, you know... Write that in your journal. The whole volunteering on his campaign, and now All he's that. like the chief law enforcement officer. Yep. Seems... So now, chummy. interestingly, Mueller apparently is now... Mueller. 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 Mueller is apparently now um, looking into other charges actually against the president. It's now. fake news. Fake news. As as the uh, commander in chief said this morning, this is the single biggest political witch hunt in our nation's history. This is it. Regardless of the McCarthy hearings, regardless of the Red Scare, uh-huh. that he's just bringing people in and having hearings. Forget all that. Or, forget that. I mean, those are big deals. Don't get us wrong. This is the single biggest one. This is it. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder if things are different um, when they went to the hospital to visit that congressperson, congressman that was shot. Uh, Melania Trump went with him. I wonder if things are different now at the White House with Melania there. Has he been texting and tweeting less? I, mean, is I, re- he- I read this morning that Trump kind of you know maybe floated the idea of firing the special counsel guy. Oh, he would never that, float. But then Melania was one of the voices that came in and said, no, no, you can't do that. It would look bad. If you have nothing to hide, why fire the guy investigating you? See, What's Melania. he going to find? Good to have her in the big house. And now that this story came out, it makes it even almost impossible to fire him because now he, the, you know, the story is he's investigating you. Yeah. So now if you fire him, it looks like you're just trying to. Now it looks really bad. Yeah. So just let it happen. If there's nothing there, don't worry about it. She's good. And, you know, her cookies are good, too. Have you ever had those Melania cookies? No. So good. Pepperidge Farm? Nope. You got to check them out. They sound really yummy. <laughs> they sound really yummy, though. <laughs> Melania's. Never heard of them. Hmm. Interesting. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we will be talking about the impact of transportation on your life. You won't believe the numbers. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead a healthier life.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we all know rush hour traffic can get crazy, and over the years it seems to have gotten even worse. And, uh, you know, people, transport of, uh, of content and products from store to uh, our neighborhoods, along with just more and more people driving, it just seems chaotic. So here to talk with us today about traffic patterns and so much more is uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Edward Humes. His latest book is Door to Door, The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation. He's also the author of Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash, and the collaborative ebook that he did, Beyond the Snitch Tank. So we're honored to have him here. Edward Humes, thank you for your time. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Matt. Now, Edward, what gets a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and writer uh, to want to write a book about transportation? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we're obsessed with transportation, aren't we? Totally. Uh, uh, it's embedded in everything we do, often uh, outside our zone of, of being of awareness. You know, I mean, we, we obsess on our time stuck in traffic, of course, but that's the littlest part of the the transportation that's essential to our daily lives. Everything you eat, buy, drink, touch, wear, uh, every click you make makes a, <laughs> when you buy something on Amazon, makes a truck trick. We have truck tri- trips somewhere. That's true. And uh, by doing that, we're embedding such fantastic amounts of transportation in our daily lives uh, and our daily choices that uh, it's really literally the biggest thing in our civilization. It's Plus, maybe the greatest accomplishment of our civilization, and it's our greatest curse all at once. You know, I have never thought of that, but one, you know, one purchase on Amazon, and I've obligated airplanes, uh, trucks, people, and, you know, even myself uh, to have to get this package somewhere or somehow to myself. Plus, it seems like uh, Americans have this love affair with an automobile anyway. So we add on top of it the fact that our cars say so much about us and we all feel like we have this universal right to have one and uh, to have it on the road. It's, it's true. We we love our, our uh, cars in America, although that's a little bit on the lane and there's a generational gap in the way uh, uh, younger generations feel about their cars than uh, – uh, than than uh, my generation, you yeah. know, the generation of the sixties and seventies. But uh, you know, think about our daily rituals. You know, how uh, how it, it revolves around uh, the car, and I don't mean just driving to work. I mean, what's you know, what's your rite of passage as a teenager? You get your driver's right. license, and what's the you know, one of the first great uh, uh, baby shower uh, gifts an expectant uh, couple gets? It's the, the you know that great car seat that they're going to drive. You know, and of course, you have the uh, ritual at the end of our lives where you, we have fleets of these black cars, uh, hearses to, to trundle us off to our resting places. I mean, every every uh, phase of our life has a has a big moment that revolves around our, our car, so and it's just ingrained. It's it's part of the way we live, and we never see anymore how grossly stupid our cars are, how wasteful they are, because the typical. American car weighs 4,000 pounds and carry five or six people along with eight suitcases. It has these, this <laughs> huge capacity. But most of the time, it's that vehicle moving one person from place to place. That's how we use our cars most of the time and most of our trips. It's, it's incredibly tr- wasteful. 4,000 pounds to carry 180 pounds or whatever the weight is. Yeah, so if you've kept, 
if you calculated out how uh, what happens to the gas we pump into our gas tanks, you can see the waste in dollars and cents. Uh-huh. Forget what's inside, what the car is carrying. Just the inherent inefficiencies of an internal combustion engine. Uh, 80% of the fuel that it burns is wasted. In other words, it goes to heat, it goes to mechanical inefficiency, it goes to friction. Uh, so only 20% of that energy produced by burning gasoline actually moves the car, which means eight out of you know 80 cents out of every dollar you spend on gasoline is essentially wasted by the this industrial age technology we're using. And then when you're only if you want to look at how much of that energy is actually moving moving the person in the car mm. rather than the car, the yeah. car itself. Now only about one percent of what we spend uh, on gasoline is actually physically is actually used to move the person inside the car. It's so true. And um, then all of a sudden Tesla comes around and they you know invent these electric cars, but and this electric car can go ludicrous speed, and it makes sense because they're lighter. And um, but they also we don't need that much energy to move a car. <laughs> And to, or to move a person, no. even though, and we're, we're wasting eighty percent of the energy, and, and just even just the resources, I guess, you know, oil, but also the the metals, and and then shipping these cars around the country, you know, or the world. It's it really is. So, is that what drove you, Edward, to think, okay, I'm going to take on the car, I'm going to take on our cars, I'm going to take on this magnificent, maddening, mysterious world of transportation. Did you only go on, did you only like look at the cars, the automobile world, or did you look at all forms of transportation? Oh, all forms. Actually, the, the conceit of, of door-to-door was to, uh, was to sit in my living room and think, okay, what does it take to keep me and my family moving and, and functioning in, in the uh, modern world? Uh, how much transportation does that require? And that's why I said the cars are the least of it. It's, it, it. Cars are a huge issue, and we could do so much better than we're doing now with the, the average vehicle. But I was interested in what it takes to get my, my iPhone uh, into my pocket, which it turns out, when you think of all the parts and materials in that particular product, you could go to the moon and back with the, with the miles it takes to assemble this globally sourced device. Are you serious? Uh, so, like, like you, you mean yeah. getting getting all the parts to one place, uh, getting all of the 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 basic resources to create the phone to the place, then create those parts, then ship the parts to the one place, then manufacture the phone, then get the phone to you. We have we've just expended an abundance of energy and 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 resource. Oh, it, it's it's huge, and that and that's why the the transportation sector. Uh, is now the most uh, energy intensive, the most carbon intensive, and and sort of the biggest uh, chunk of our uh, emissions now comes from transportation in terms of both pollutants and carbon. Um, it's it's only only recently eclipsed uh, power generation as the as the leader, the dubious distinction of leading those categories. Yeah, but it's because we embed so much transportation in in our profits and what we consume. And, and, and uh, I guess that's also, that's not just a, a cell phone, but that's every piece everything. of clothing. That's every shoe you wear. That's everything you buy. If you buy a gallon of gasoline in California, that's where I looked at the fuel formula for that. That 
gallon of gasoline will have traveled uh, through pipeline trucks, ships, and trains approximately 100,000 miles before you drive a, a block with it. There are oh 14 countries, 14 countries and four states that gallon of gasoline will be sourced from. Uh, from so from from uh, origin in the oil fields of the countries that supply uh, oil to that pump, it's a hundred thousand mile journey. Holy cow! And, and, and so it, we will end up expending more energy to get that gasoline to our cars than um, than that twenty percent that ag- is actually. Uh, uh, of the gasoline we burn that actually moves the car. <laughs> yeah. It's mind-boggling. It I is mean, mind-boggling. I, mean, I, I loved working on this book because you see how we live as no civilization in the history of the planet has ever lived because global trade has been around forever. We've always shipped goods around the world, but it was always a measure of um, worth of the product versus the uh, the risk of, of going all that time and distance to move things around. So global shipping was for items or products or commodities that were specific to the location, wine or silk or gems or gold. You can only get it in a few places, so of course you have to ship it. Or <clears throat> or items that can only be grown in certain places like coffee. That's how shipping worked for most of the human civilization's existence. Right. Uh, and now we ship our socks from 12, 12 miles and miles away in our underwear and our pencils, things that were never worth <laughs> traveling that great a distance. Yeah. We, we are now embedding fantastic amounts of transportation in these simple products that were always sourced locally until fairly recently. So and that's you, world-changing. You give an example uh, in your Wired article, your iPhone travels about 500,000 miles total journey to your pocket um, plus um, then you were talking about fuel is about 100,000 miles really and the fuel that traveled 100,000 miles is only going to move me at the most 300 miles uh, before I need to refuel so (laughs) that's another way to look at it so we're we're spending 100,000 to get three (laughs) but I guess that's the deal though with a lot of this it sounds like Edward is we don't we don't see the cost. We don't see – I mean, it's not an efficient model. We're, we're in an upside-down – I guess this is why you call it maddening, mysterious, magnificent. But um, it's a weird world. And, and are you just trying to draw a light on the fact that, folks, this is crazy? Well, it is. It's unsustainable, too, uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, I, I, perhaps people uh, – Listening or wondering, well, why was this? Big, what caused this big shift? Is it yeah. the trade deals we've been hearing so much about, or is it uh, tariffs, or is it unfair competition? Uh, those are minor factors compared to what the big uh, <clears throat> uh, tipping point was, which was the invention of the shipping container. <laughs> it's a big dumb steel box, right? But it's yeah. brilliant, big dumb steel box because it changed the way we we ship things from having gangs of, um, <coughs> excuse me, gangs of longshoremen ponderously loading uh, items into ship holds, like you would, you know, pack a giant trunk of your car with suitcases and cramming everything in it. Yeah. Now all our goods, most of them, are packed into these, you know, boxcar-sized 
containers at the source orderly, securely. They're locked up so that there's no pilferage anymore because you can't get to the goods to walk off the, you know, the pilferage was a huge problem in the old world of shipping. Uh, and then everything is loaded efficiently onto ships that used to take days uh, at minimum oh, yeah. to load. Now could be loaded in a matter of hours by a crane and a few uh, uh, helpers on the ground. And it's fantastic to watch this happen. It's an amazing process because these ships are designed with these rails in them, and then you stack the ships on them, they slide into place like, like Lego blocks. Mm-hmm. And it's efficiently and that, doing that something. transformed everything. Yeah. And we've, we've now, in, with science and our highest efficiencies, we're now efficiently doing something that's ludicrous. That's like, but it works, you know? Exactly. And it, it, it masks the true cost of it because now we have these fantastic mega ships. 6,000 container ships Holy cow. Uh, serve the entire world. I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot, but these, when you're talking about one ship that contained enough goods to stock about, uh, you know, five Walmart superstores in one pop. I mean, oh, wow. Think of, think of how big all the yeah. goods in, a, in Walmart. That's, one ship can, can handle, you know, five or more of those, and the ships keep getting bigger. Unbelievable. No, I said there were 6,000. Here's the, one of the hidden costs. 160 of those ships, just 160, and there's 6,000 of them, um, emit, as they burn this incredibly dirty fuel that they use, they emit more particulates and smog-causing pollutants than all the cars in the world. Holy 160 God. of these ships out-pollute all the cars in the world. And we and we just keep That's them coming. That's the hidden cost. Yeah, and nobody's responsible for that because it all happens in international waters. Right. So it's not like anybody can get a fine for being polluting. Uh, it's, it doesn't exist legally, and but it does exist physically, and it wreaks terrible uh, damage on our planet. No, absolutely. Uh, Let's take a break, Edward. We're speaking with Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and author Edward Humes. Uh, You can go to his website, edwardhumes.com, and we're talking about his book, Door to Door, The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation. It's costing us, folks, and there's a lot of hidden costs. In fact, most of the costs are hidden. Sure, you pay $700 for an iPhone, but did you know that it traveled uh, 500,000 miles all of its parts, all of its basic uh, uh, ingredients or the things that make up the iPhone, they've been on a big journey, and it's only 700 bucks to you. But it may be impacting us in ways we don't even know about. We'll take a break, come back, continue this uh, intriguing journey into the world of transportation. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the show with us today is uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning um, uh, journalist and author Edward Humes. His latest book is Door to Door, The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation. He also is the author of the book Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. And uh, you can find out more on his website, edwardhumes.com. Edward, again, thank you for your time, and uh, thanks for enlightening us about the impact Really, that's going on behind the scenes in our transportation world. 
Well, you know, it's an important subject. I think we ought to all know what we're, we're getting into when you uh, buy something online or when you uh, make a different product decision. To, uh, but, you know, it's not all bad news. I mean, there's a lot of uh, amazing developments in the transportation world that are exciting and um, promise a, a kind of a cool future if we choose to take certain Forward. Yeah, some of this is uh, gets into some interesting things. Like um, our own population, only three percent of our population, I guess, uh, in the United States, bike to work. Um, and, and it really almost seems like a lot of our uh, a lot of our um, cities they're not necessarily designed very well for biking. You're you're actually sharing the road with uh, other cars. It seems dangerous to some of us that don't do it. But, um, you know, there's other countries that can fit bicycles, mopeds, scooters, everything else on the road, and they seem to be doing it fine. Do you, is this data, as you get this information out to everybody about transportation and its, and its effects on us, why is it not changing, you know, more people taking other forms of transportation? I think it is changing. I mean, we're seeing a, um, a lot of attention being paid to uh, – non-motorized uh, transport in, in many of our cities and, uh, and, and regional areas are, are looking to make it possible to safely mix uh, bikes and pedestrians and uh, other forms of active transportation is the new term of art. Uh, that's, that's been happening uh, in recent years, and uh, it's picking up steam. It's often controversial because... Um, People who rely on their cars for transportation tend to view it as just another impediment. Oh, no, more bikes on the road. <laughs> slow everything down. Yeah, I don't want to hit anybody. Into, and you know what? It's If you do it right, it actually can have the opposite effect. That's the cool thing. There's a lot of myths that, that get in the way of effective um, transportation planning and, and infrastructure building. And we do a lot of things and spend a lot of money on uh, projects to fix traffic jams that don't work, hmm. <laughs> like adding lanes to, and, and this is all part of the bicycle thing. So if you add more lanes to a congested freeway, you think, ah, that's going to make traffic better. But our experience in every state in the country is, in, particularly in um, urban areas, when you add those extra lanes, it doesn't make traffic better. It often makes it worse. It's, hmm. you know, like the old Field of Dreams movie. If you build it, they will come. Well, that's how traffic literally works. They do you know, come. It's called induced demand. So we spend billions trying to uh, – the most popular uh, ribbon-cutting moments where you open up those new lanes and, and expanded roads, and then everybody is scratching their head and wondering a year later why things are even worse than they were before. It's because lanes don't uh, – make traffic better. Uh, human behavior makes traffic better. Mm -hmm. When you do things to get people to choose a different time of day to drive or a different route or to take, not drive that day because they have a better option, whether it's a bus or a bike or whatever, that's the stuff that fixes traffic. And that's where bike lanes come in. We've seen this in Manhattan where they literally um, took lanes away from cars in incredibly crowded urban environment and put in protected bike lanes but they also added other bits of infrastructure, like pull-outs, so that when cars are turning left or right on these busy streets, they don't block the cars behind them, but they have a separate little pocket to slip into before they mm. slow down and make their turn. When you combine that with bike lanes, suddenly, and they know this from looking at the GPS data from um, 
yellow cabs, which are all over, uh, you know, Manhattan, they know that the traffic improved after they took lanes away, but did these engineering uh, tricks to, to make everything flow better, including bicycle traffic. They actually made traffic better. So there's, there's ways to do it that benefit everybody and also improve safety. Safety is a huge thing with the way we uh, engineer our streets and roads. And, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's funny. You would think when you add more to the mix, bicycles and, and uh, pedestrians, it would make things less safe. But when you do it right, it makes things much more safe. Hmm. And it, I mean, that, there's hope there. And I, I guess, where do you see this going in the future? Um, I mean, we've had people on the show before talking about the fact, just just what it's going to take to start delivering everyone's packages as more and more people move to online and the congestion in cities of delivery trucks, um, how com- complicated that can be in certain cities. Um, where do you see this going? Because this seems like it's going to be more and more and uh, chaos and confusion could reign, but there's also hope. There is hope. Well, we need to do a couple things. You know that fifty percent of the cars on the on the road during rush hours are not people going to work. They're doing other things that could be um, uh, they're optional trips that could happen at other times of day. If you can induce even a portion of those people to uh, drive at a different time of day, uh, traffic would get immensely better. Uh, one way to do that is highly controversial is called congestion pricing, which is the four-letter word politicians hate to say, T-O-L-L, toll. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's like the dirty word. Uh, but it actually works. They've done it in cities like London, and um, it doesn't cure everything, but it reduces congestion in a way that uh, other things don't. So finding uh, carrots and sticks to get people to change that behavior, that's one thing. When I was a kid in the 1960s, about half of school children walked their bike to school. Right. Today it's 13%. 13%. What's changed? All those schools are basically still in the same places. So we have become the nation that hates to walk. Um, we walk less than any uh, developed country, and certainly undeveloped country in the world. Literally, they, they've measured this. And, um, you know, no wonder we have an obesity problem. Exactly. We. we Half the trips we take on any given day are three miles or less, and yet uh, over 80% of them are done in a car. Now, that's another behavior we should find ways to change, and one way is to sort of push people back to walking their kids to school in the morning instead of driving them at, at six blocks, you know, yeah. or riding a bike or whatever. Right. That's a start. I mean, little things like that. And then big, the big thing on the horizon is, the future of driverless cars, which will has, has a very great potential to transform both goods movement and, and people movement in a way that would be more efficient, safer. Uh, uh, if, if you combine automation with ride sharing, suddenly you get cars, instead of being parked 94% of their existence, which is what the average car does, you could have them have shared autonomous vehicles and you summon the car you need for the trip you're taking with a tap on your smartphone uh, and it takes you where you want to go. It drops you off. It doesn't park. Instead, it goes off to take somebody else somewhere else. That's great. And uh, that cities, right now, 33% of the average uh, (laughs) um, central portion of cities are devoted to parking. 
Mm. Half the congestion in its inner urban cores are people looking for parking. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> when you think about it. Eliminate parking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What if that all goes away? And, and you know, the three biggest causes of uh, death and injury on our roads are speeding, drinking, and distraction. Well, <laughs> robots don't drink. They don't get distracted. Uh, and And... You know, if you look at the Google car where I rode around in it, uh, the, the driverless technology, uh, one, one that's gotten a lot of attention, uh, it's the only car on the street following the speed limit, I can assure you. <laughs> well, and what if they <laughs> could the all... The yeah. engines been have been rear-ended by impatient drivers. So, yeah, uh, and if all cars are communicating with each other, and, I mean, yeah, I mean, imagine eliminating the accidents and death on the road. I mean... There's so many benefits going forward. Do you sense – how do you sense that Americans will go forward with this future? Um, it seems like we might do it kicking and screaming and, you know, sc- screaming our rights are being infringed upon because now you're increasing taxes and tolls and you're not letting me drive when I want to. How do you, how do you sense that will go? People will do uh, the things that benefit them the most. And we are – we are in love with our cars, but we're not in love with our traffic. Mm. And we're not in love with how much it costs. I mean, a, a car is the second biggest expense a family has to deal with uh, 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 after their housing. And if you think about it, well, we, you know, if you buy a house, your hope is that's a great investment and it'll be worth more someday. Is your car a great investment that's going to be worth more every day? No. The minute you drive it off the lot, it's worth less than you... You're paying for it. Yeah. It's a terrible investment. We do it because we have to. But if there's, uh, I I truly believe that our grandchildren or our great grandchildren are going to say how absurd it was that we spent all this money and time driving our own cars. You know, but what, driving won't go away. Right. People who do it for pleasure, it'll be like horseback riding. That I mean, a hundred years ago. 120 years ago, horse, horses were our primary means of transportation at a, at a personal level. Our cities were full of them, and, and it was a problem. Uh, and some people were very upset about a transition to motor vehicles. Uh, a lot of people lost jobs. Think of all the farriers and smiths and horse breeders and everything else that lost their livelihood because of the cars. But we're going to see a difficult transition like that in the future. But car driving will become recreation the way horseback riding is today and and safe places where they're not, you know, crashing into another. We're experiencing the equivalent of four passenger airliner crashes a week. Wow. That's how many people die on our roads in America. Four airliners a week. Would we tolerate that for, for no. more than, you know, a week? No, of course not. Uh, and yet we've normalized ourselves to that level of carnage, uh, a death every 15 minutes on our U.S. roads and streets. And that also goes away if we get, if we do the deployment of driverless vehicles the right way. Yeah. Well, the book is Door to Door, The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation. And Edwards, we can see we that you took your top-notch writing. And I just love how... I mean, I never thought of it as four airlines going down, 
But when you think of it that way, no, we don't tolerate that. And we don't – none of us want to go back to the horse days. Um, just like in 30, 40, 50 years from now, we may not want to go back to the car days. Edward, we appreciate you. Keep up your great work, your great writing. Uh, the website is edwardhumes.com where you can get more information about all of his books and all of his writing. We will take a break, my friends. Remember, it's up to us. The more we know, the more we can change things and understand best how to utilize our lives and our resources. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Uh, Again, those numbers are staggering. To get your... Uh, iPhone to your house to have it, to have purchased it, 500,000 miles. The parts, the pieces, the battery, the plastic, everything that makes up that iPhone traveled 500,000 miles just to get to you. That is a lot of transportation, a lot of pollution, a lot of fuel used. And it seems like we live uh, more and more in a world where we take a lot of stuff for granted. We don't think about the costs that get there. Um, There was an interesting study, a technology-based study about um, college students. And, you know, we always talk about security and safety on the show. Um, Nearly three-quarters of people, 74% of the people in the U.S. believe it's very important to be in control of who can get information about them to protect their own their own information, right? 60% say they would never feel comfortable sharing their email contacts with others. However, in a study they did at a college, a university, um, college students, 98% of those gave away their friends' emails when promised free pizza. Like, oh, sure, yeah, you want Jeff's email? Yeah, here it is. You want his phone number, his home phone? Here it is. Now, give me a free pizza. So if we give uh, a free pizza, the recent study from 3,100 Massachusetts MIT students um, published in the National Bureau of Economic Research found you'll pretty much give anything for a piece of pizza. Isn't that crazy? So we don't necessarily know what's going in the phones. We don't know all the costs that are associated. We don't know the lives that are being impacted. And we just go buy a $700 iPhone. And... Yeah, you want my most personal information of all of my friends? Here you go. 94% would do it for a piece of pizza. Just give me the pizza. 12% of internet users use any kind of password manager uh, like LastPass or iPassword. Only 12%. Roughly two-thirds of respondents say instead they rely on memorizing easy passwords like 123456. Or they use the password password. The old uh, fallback password, password. So, um, folks, we got to get more real about our lives. We've got to get more intentional. Maybe ask a few more questions. Understand a little bit more. Is it worth buying socks that had to travel 50,000 miles to be made and to get to you? What, we can't get socks in our neighborhood? Come on. Anyway. Crazy stuff, but uh, it's our lives. Let's take it back and start becoming more informed in how we live and how we protect ourselves. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Happy Thursday to you. And uh, boy, oh boy, oh boy, have we got a lot of stories to tell. It's a lot of of boys. It's a lot of boys. One of them, um, by the way, named Stas, cute, bouncing, 400-pound baby boy. More really dropping than bouncing. Yeah, it's so true. Dropping and flopping. Uh, Stas put the flop in the drop. (laughs) Uh, That's Jeff's new baby. And uh, you getting sleep, Jeffrey? I'm getting more than my wife. Oh, wow. Which is usually the case. Those are tough times. Those first few days home. That's where you really rethink the whole thing. (laughs) But beautiful. Then eventually uh, they'll be teenagers and then you'll wonder where they are at night when you're trying to sleep. Like, where are those kids? Where are those darn kids? Uh, We got a lot to get into today. We'll be talking about the principles of balanced leadership um, and the book Tighten the Lug Nuts, The Principles of a Balanced Leader. And when we when we get into this, uh, you know, it's really fun to, to look at all the different books and the names of books. Tighten the Lug Nuts, by the way, an incredibly important principle, right? So uh, we will get into that principle about Leadership 101. Also, we'll be talking about uh, spiders in your ears. Spiders in your ears. Unbelievable video that we will post on our Twitter page of a woman in India Mm. that just, you know, you hear something in your ear long enough and you're like, I swear I got spiders in my ear. Exchanging glances. And uh, we'll have a song, um, Spiders (laughs) in the Ears, the lesser known Frank Sinatra song. It was a B-side. We've got that ahead for you. Plus... Um, you know, we'll, we'll, I think we'll, we'll talk about moms and how much should you spend on your kid's prom date and should it involve a camel? Oh, of course. And $25,000 no, $25, and uh, three tons of sand. Hey, do we have any info? Terry, a while back you did a story on how much people are spending or how much they spent on Mother's Day. Do we have anything for Father's Day? I keep having to remind my wife that... This coming Sunday is Father's Day. And, you know, she uses the excuse of, well, I just had a baby, so I haven't really been thinking about well, it. Well, y- yeah. So you're you're worried about her father, obviously. Sure. We'll go with that. Because really, you're not – she shouldn't have to get you anything, right? My wife made that clear yesterday yeah. that you're not my father. <laughs> well, that's what I told my wife. I go, I'll help your kids. But, yeah. I mean – I mean, I appreciate everything you've done. But You're an we incredible have, woman. We have an anniversary. We yeah. can go through the farce of Valentine's yeah. Day. But, you know, we're fine. I have a mother to worry about for Mother's Day. Did you say the farce of Valentine's yeah, Day? Yeah, it's all just – it's you know, it's so you can sell greeting cards and chocolate and stuff. But well, your anniversary should be the day. Ooh, a lot of people are mad at you for that one. It's a farce. Yeah. You know what my kids can get me for Father's Day? What? Just – Sleep in until 8 o'clock yep. or just stay in your room until 8 o'clock. Just leave me alone. Yeah. Well, it could happen. In about five years, it'll happen. It's wonderful at our house because on a Saturday, everyone sleeps in. Your kids get old enough, everyone's sleeping in. Thank you. We're here all day. 
We're here all day. So we'll get to uh, spiders and proms and uh, maybe some more um, Father's Day gift ideas. You want the, your kids to sleep in? Just one, just an hour and a half longer because they always come out at 630 on the weekends. We taught our, our children very young how to make their own bowl of cereal and how to turn on the TV. Oh, they're well-versed with the TV remote. So they're, if they, they're good for three so hours. So then what we point. would just tell them is don't come in and interrupt us. Just you go in and watch cartoons. Do they still have just cartoons on Saturday morning? They have networks of cartoons. Yeah. So, yeah. so just watch the network. Now what, make sure it's the right network because you don't want yeah. your child watching, you know, my Shining. Kid, my kid just turns on Netflix and finds what he wants. Does he really? Yeah. Mine my too. wife can't even get our Netflix to he work. He goes, I know where Netflix <laughs> is because I'm a big boy now. Okay. Totally is. Good job. You're an addict like daddy. Um, <laughs> such great news, son. Okay, we'll get to that fun. And uh, we gotta we got to kick it all off with the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? House Speaker Paul Ryan received a standing ovation Wednesday when he sh- uh, shirked partisanship and embraced unity in a speech on the House floor in the wake of the congressional baseball practice shooting earlier in the morning. We are united. We are united in our shock. We are united in our anguish, Ryan said. An attack on, attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. Ryan noted that for all the noise and fury between Republicans and Democrats fighting for what they believe in, we are one family. We do not shed our humanity when we enter this chamber. Ryan took a moment to praise the bravery of Capitol Police officers and the baseball practice in Alexander, Virginia. Also, he gave a shout-out to House Majority Whip Steve uh, Scalise, who was among the five injured in the shooting. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. That was, that was a great speech. It was a good moment. It was a great – that is the American moment. Again, we always talk about the disaster we need to bring us together, and it did for about 10 minutes yesterday. And then Nancy Pelosi stood up and shocked the room by agreeing with him, agreeing what? with Speaker Ryan. She goes, I never do this. Meanwhile, back on uh, Fox News, CNN News, they they were making it partisan. They were trying to find someone to point a finger at. Yeah. Uh, at least four people are dead, including a gunman, and multiple people are injured after a shooting at a UPS facility in San Francisco, mm. according to local reports. A neighbor, a neighbor told the San Francisco Chronicle that he saw multiple bodies being dragged to ambulances following the shooting. Police were on the scene as of 9 a.m. They warned civilians to stay away, you know, stay in place type of thing. According to the San Francisco police, the shooter, Jimmy Lamb, attended a company meeting and then opened fire. Two guns were recovered from the scene. Apparently he was angry over uh, excessive overtime. He had filed a grievance with the uh, labor union. And uh, he felt like he was working too many hours. Yeah. And went into this meeting. They have like a, a pre-shift meeting at UPS and stood up and started shooting people. Holy cow. So. By the way, I mean, really, you, you need sleep. And if you're not mentally stable, that could be destabilizing in and of itself. And from personal experience, they do they work to kind hard. of work people hard mm-hmm. there. And if you have a... Uh, if you just have had enough, yeah. I could see people taking. A well, we used to hear step, this about so. the post office, right? Postal workers going would go postal. postal. Right now, it's going to be UPS. Going brown. U- going I'm, brown. I'm not sure what that would be. No, I think that's something else. Michigan Health and Human Services Director Nick Lyon is charged with involuntary manslaughter and misconduct in office for his part in the Flint City water crisis. Chief Medical Executive Eden Wells also faces charges of obstruction of justice and lying to a police officer. Both high-ranking health officials were charged in connection with the water-linked outbreak of Legionnaire's disease that killed 12 Flint area residents and sickened dozens more in a 17-month period. Lyon is accused 
of causing a man's death by failing to alert the public about the dangerous outbreak, 13 other current or former state Flint officials have been charged in relation to the lead contamination of the city's Uh-oh, water. someone's going to pay now. It is... Uh, There's trouble. Never mind. I was going to say something. Uh, uh, news yesterday it was big in the sports world. Finally, this rumored what? boxing match is going to happen. Floyd Mayweather Jr. and UFC fighter Conor McGregor will Are face off August it? 26th in Las Vegas. The Nevada State Athletic Commission approved the fight Wednesday. Mayweather, 49-0, announced his retirement in September 2015 after def- after you know the fight that he had. McGregor, a UFC's... Hold it. O- he's their only simultaneous two-division champion. Won the lightweight belt in November 2016. The whole thing is you have a boxer who's supposed to be the pound-for-pound best boxer. Right, right. And this guy who's a UFC guy is like, I could take him. Well, all you got to do is get a hold of Merriweather, right? They're, this is straight boxing. Oh, they, oh, they, oh, wow. So you're not oh, going to the, the UFC guy is not going to step in and are they and wearing try to wrestle are they wearing real boxing gloves? Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, okay. That's so McGregor different. is going to step out. Oh, I and think box. he's in trouble. He thinks he's good enough to take out Floyd Mayweather. No way. And people are. It's just. Uh, it's the discussion and the fights back and forth and the fans are, are kind of crazy. Just. The I money. think we got to have one round. Just well, one round where you can <laughs> grapple. When it comes out, what what the money looks like for this is oh, going bet. to be that's insane. This about. is a pay-per-view explosion that's going to happen. I, I might fight Mayweather for the money. <laughs> that's like if I were Forrest Gump and I was a really good ping-pong player and you told me that I wasn't allowed to use my backhand. Yeah. It's like that. Yeah. How is he, he going to beat Mayweather? I don't know. I don't know that he will. But for the money, who cares? But yeah, there's That's no probably. I mean, it's not like he can't take a hit. There's no takedowns. Connor, there's no like Gregor's. arm bars or yeah. sleeper holes. It's all straight. Just, oh, just I really want to see Mayweather though grapple. Don't you? I, I, like, don't you want to no. see him? Get and in Mayweather wouldn't do this unless it was just boxing because he's not. A, that's not his strength. Oh, that's going to be cool. Though. Yeah, and finally, the bat signal will shine one final time. For a beloved Dark Knight, the late Adam West will be honored Thursday night tonight oh, neat, neat. in Los Angeles. Mayor uh, Eric Garcetti, Garcetti will uh, and the L.A. Police Department will light up one of their searchlights oh, cool. with the bat signal in honor of Adam West. See you guys. Life is still good for you, Marvel comic. Is he a Marvel no, comic? He's DC, but that's you fine. DC comic people, come on! Didn't you, oh, so was that one of the shows that you watched? Yeah, I grew up on that one. Anytime it showed up on TV, because obviously I was way too y- I wasn't alive when that show was on. Yeah, you were way too young. Um, I would make a point of watching it. That's where I learned that tights were cool. Hmm. I always, I always felt bad for Robin. He just always seemed to, you know, a step behind Mr. West. They had amazing upper body strength too. Yeah. Always walking up the sides of buildings. Oh yeah, just walking. And um, I always thought, what a great, you know, big, broad-chested man Mr. West was. And then I didn't know, all of a sudden, I realized later that maybe that's just prosthetics. I don't know. Who was your favorite Batman villain to watch? Uh, the Joker. The Joker? Pre- C- Cesar Romero, where he refuses to uh, shave his mustache so that it's painted over it? Oh, is that what that was? Yeah. Yeah, I thought he had a spider on his lip. No. Speaking of spiders on your lip, uh, if you are out there suffering headaches... Um, and you've tried everything. Maybe there's one thing you haven't tried yet. A woman's worst fear was realized when the source of her excruciating headache turned out to be a large spider living in her ear. Uh, uh, Little Miss Muffet 
is this lady's name. <laughs> really? No, 49 year old patient identified as. What is it? What Lakshmi. is a tough hit, by the way? Don't ask. Okay. If you have to ask, then yeah. you shouldn't know. Yeah. Uh, she woke up from an afternoon nap on her veranda experiencing slight discomfort, a tingling sensation in her right ear. Like maybe she's thinking, whoa, I'm, I'm experiencing some slight discomfort. Uh, I feel tingling in my ear. Um, but uh, apparently she had some sort of obstruction. She tried to dig around in her ear with her finger but wasn't able to feel anything. Or, or like my dad would do, you grab your keys. Oh, yeah. The car keys and you start digging around. Oh, like, this will fix it. Boy. After her headache became too excruciating to handle, Lakshmi's husband rushed her to the hospital in uh, Habal, India. When doctors shone a light inside her aching ear, they discovered a horrific truth. A live spider <laughs> had crawled inside Lakshmi's ear and had taken up residence. And, uh, folks, if you go to at Dr. Matt show on Twitter, we have the video. It is the most, I think, disturbing video. And we've we've gone through a lot of disturbing video. The man that has to clean the the sewers. We've we've shown those videos. We've shown Fatbergs. Fatbergs. We've shown shown everything you can imagine. But I think by far the most disturbing video is uh, the medics that are trying to coax the spider out of her ear. Just using a small beam of light, which I did not know the spiders would walk to the light. At least that's what I heard. It doesn't really say no, in the article how they got the, the they just spider said successfully to move. leading it out of her ear with a small beam of light. Oh, it says right there. Okay. You just, they just teased it out, and they kept saying, walk to the light, Mm-mm. walk to the light. And all you see, it is disturbing. Two little eyes, beady little spider eyes. Don't they Wha- have like eight I know, but there was only two oh, okay. uh, the headlights, I think gotcha. they call them, mm-hmm. uh, spider <laughs> the headlights. Saw, yeah. and, um, and then you can see the spider in a close-up shot walking through out of her ear, but like yeah. through like the hair that's in our ear. I mean, honestly. He's like, this is my home. What are you guys doing? Back off. And then it's I like, and it, I think it stopped for all the cameras to take pictures and it waved. Yeah, took some questions from the media. There's a red carpet. It was, oh. Anyway, um, so... I guess it's common in an emergency room to have people have things in their ears, obstructions, but very rarely do they have a live thing walk out. It's like wax, right? So, yeah. What do you think a spider would be doing in someone's ear? Well. Like what would be so interesting in that ear that that it would want to stay in there? Well, it was a nice dark hole. Okay. With a a kind of a nice coating of wax. Mm -hmm. Maybe the wax could be a nutrient for the spider. So I've got a few sounds here of – what this spider might be doing in this person's ear. Oh, and boy. you tell me which one you okay, think we'll is most pick, likely. I'll pick which one. Here we go. Oh. Hey, Watching TV. Okay, so maybe <laughs> so some channel maybe, surfing. Yeah, maybe some channel surfing. All right. You mentioned Frank Sinatra a few minutes ago. Yeah. Oh. Some karaoke, Some karaoke. maybe? Uh, I guess it depends on where the spider, if the spider's used to karaoke. Some spiders probably aren't that into karaoke. Okay. He's okay. got cool. a great voice, by Yeah, the way. he does. Uh, and then here's the last one. Oh, having babies. Yeah. Oh, that's... Uh, okay, Please yeah. no, tell no, no, me no. that that spider did not have babies in that woman's ear. No babies, ear. no babies. Uh, maybe that spider was like you, and they just dropped the babies off in the lobby, like more <laughs> down by the ear lobe. 
Can you imagine okay, yeah. if that woman had babies, spider babies no, in her ear? Oh, the video's intense enough. You can't have a bunch of babies follow that spider out. See, now, if that spider were singing some Frank Sinatra in my ear, I probably wouldn't mind. I'm pretty sure the spider was just watching TV. Yeah. Yeah, if I had to pick one of the three. Well, you mentioned the good, comfy uh, earwax couch Mm. that's in there, so. Check out the video. (laughs) At Dr. Matt's show, you'll never be the same. And uh, and, uh, this is why I wear earplugs to bed. I really do. Every night, because it just puts me in my own little world. And it keeps the spiders out. Hey, up next, Rocky Romanella will be joining us. The Principles of Balance Leadership. We'll be talking Leadership 101 up next. You know, it's the choices we make that determines the kind of leader we can be. In the book, Tighten the Lug Nuts, The Principles of Balanced Leadership, the author Rocky Romanella uh, uses his over 40 years of experience to supply chain, logistics, and transportation areas, as well as retail, sales, and as a CEO, uh, to help explore the ways true leaders can add value as a trusted advisor and mentor and a visionary. And he's here today to walk us through the process and uh, and how to better lead our organizations. Rocky, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. You bet. Do you think leadership uh, is as strong as it used to be many, many years ago in our organizations and our corporations, or are we losing that edge? Well, I, I think it's a, just a different. It's a, just a different time. I, I, I'm not necessarily sure we're losing the edge. I, I think what happens is with so much information that's available to us, and you know the speed at which things take place. I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that it's all about people, hmm. and we lose sight of the fact that you know simple acts of kindness are still important. It's still uh, one of the best leadership. Uh, a trait that you have is that simple, hey, nice job today. Thanks for coming in. Really appreciate all you do for our, for our organization. Those simple things that, you know, you, you know, today somebody may text it or, or send them an email about it where yesterday, you know, when I first started over – actually, uh, today, is, uh, today is my anniversary, 41 years ago. I started at UPS. Congratulations. 15, yeah, thank you, sir. June fifteenth, 1976. I'm since retired. But, uh, but though the point is I think it's, it's not – it's just a different era that we have to we have to still go back to those fundamental principles of leadership, which are interaction with your people, treating your people with dignity and respect, uh, making sure that they understand that you, that that you view them as part of the solution, you do not view them as part of the problem. And I think you have to work at that because technology, while it helps you with reports and measures. It could also be that detriment in that, you know, you'd rather text me some information than you would walk down the hall and have that conversation with me. So it's I think so that, that's the challenge that's in today's world, maybe, versus I think people are more prepared. I think they're, I wouldn't say better educated, but they have more information available to them so that they, they become a little bit more prepared when they take on that new role as a leader, mentor, you know, influencer, whatever that could be. But I, but I do think that the technology, while it's a strength, can also be a weakness. Hmm. And, I mean, yeah, you, you say we have we have more information available to us. We also, it seems like, have 
different expectations of what we want from our organizations. You know, back in the day, I depended on my company to be my source of income. Um, now it seems like we might sense we have more freedom, more, you know, movement, lateral movement. We're, we're changing our jobs more than ever before, which means you might have to be a better leader just to keep people with you. Well, I think you bring up a great point, and you know it's the it's the sort of the today's discussing on you know generational things, you know, as millennials, you know, and all those kinds of things. I I look at it in, in a way I would answer the way a question that I would have been asked 41 years ago when I first started in the workplace, how would be how it's answered differently today. So my my quick analogy would be for you, you know, in in. In June 1976, when I started at UPS, if the question was asked, does UPS need Rocky Romanella, or does Rocky Romanella need UPS? Mm. Well, I would answer, no, no, I need UPS, I need a job. Uh, you know, that's how you know I was brought up. I think, you know, years later, the next generation, does UPS need Rocky Romanella, or does Rocky Romanella need UPS? I think in some ways that generation would say, no, 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 UPS needs me. I bring a lot to the table. I'm well-educated. I've got a lot going on. Today's generation, I think, is interesting. I think they answer it: we need each other. Hmm. It's interesting, and I and and so I find I find the, the, today's generation as being very inquisitive. I think sometimes we 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 view it as maybe pushing back. I don't at all. I think they're just asking good questions. You know, in my day when someone said, "Hey, you know, we need to go do that," I said, "Yes, and thank you." Yeah, I think today's generation says, "Oh, that looks good, but why do you want me to do that?" You know, and I think it's more of a learning, inquisitive. I find. You know, the, today's generation to be very inquisitive, uh, kind of thirsty for knowledge. They've been brought up with so much knowledge and information. So I think it's how you answer that question. You know, do you need your company? Does your company need you? And I think today's generation says, no, we need each other. I think this can work. I think, but but I, I need to understand why why is that next move important to me? Why is it important to the company? Where I would have just said, you know, I, I talk about it in my book, Tighten the Lug Nuts that my dad told me when I first got my job, two things, say yes and thank you. Hmm. Don't ask any other questions. Whatever they ask you to do, say yes and then say thank you. So I was kind of brought up under that world of yes and thank you. Yeah. I think today's generation says yes, thank you, but could you explain again to me why <laughs> this is important? Right? Yeah, totally, totally. And I guess uh, that's why in the book, Tighten the Lug Nuts, uh, you bring up so many examples of true leadership and being a true leader. How do you define being a true leader? I think a leader is someone who sets a vision, who influences people in a positive manner. I, I do not uh, – my term leadership is not reserved for just a title. It's not CEO or it's not you know manager. I think leadership is people who influence others. I mean, in my mind, some of the greatest leaders are teachers. Hmm. You know, I, I think about t- in today's world, as difficult as things are, there are people out there, if you ask them, you know, who's your congressman or who's your senator or who's the, you know, who's the mayor of your town may not be able to answer that question. But if you said to them, hey, can you tell me a teacher who influenced you? Everybody stops, a smile comes to their face, and they go back, yeah, fifth grade, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. So to me, that's a leader. There was influence. You, you made a difference in someone's life. I also refer to it as legacy. You know, did you leave it a little better place than you found it? Are people better because of their time with you? You know, in business, are, are your customers better because they interacted with your company? That's that whole kind of leadership thing. But, but I think that that's what leadership's all about. And leadership's not reserved for, for just individuals who have a title. I think it's all of us are leaders at one time or another because we influence others, whether as parents, teachers, mentors, coaches, 
so on and so forth. So I, that's why, for me, in the book, I talk about a lot about this concept of leadership in this broader sense of it's it's our ability to impact others in a positive way, to be positive influences, and to make a different in other, difference in other people's lives. Hmm. Is do do you have any leaders, um, uh, kind of public leaders, well known leaders? That you that you revere as a leader today, maybe one that we might all know of. Well, I had the the opportunity to meet with and talk with a legendary coach uh, UCLA, John Wooden. Oh yeah, it just yeah, it was amazing. It just it was a thing we were doing at work, and uh, you know we were doing a national convention, and uh, we talked about potential speakers and people we could talk to. And I had been reading. Uh, a, Coach Wooden's books and had an opportunity to see him speak. And as as I, I was on the committee putting together this uh, leadership meeting, and I looked at the group and I said, you know, boy, Coach Wooden's teachings and Coach Wooden's visions on leadership are so much close to our founder at the time, a uh, UPS uh, founder, uh, Jim Casey. How neat would that be to tie those two together? And everybody mm-hmm. kind of looked at you like, ah, oh, it's a great idea, but you know, good luck getting, getting Wooden. Wooden. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, what an amazing person he was, because what happened was I picked up the phone, called UCLA. I got someone in the athletic department, told them what I was thinking. They said, I think Coach Wooden might be interested. Here's his address. Why don't you write him a letter, you know, outline what you want to do, and then give him a call later on. And so I wrote him a letter, sent it, of course, UPS next day air, waited a week or two, and uh, called Coach Wooden. They said, look, he doesn't pick up. He'll, he'll, uh, he'll go into his answering machine. And sure enough, uh, waited left a message, didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks, called him back and said, hey, Coach Wooden, Rocky Romanella, I sent you a letter. Uh, you know, I've got this management conference coming up. I really need your help. Uh, and, I, and I went through his, his uh, you know, pyramid of success. You know, I got all the hard mm-hmm. work, enthusiasm. I said, but Coach, I got four kids that really need you to help me. And I hung <laughs> up, you know. About an hour later, my daughter, Jean Marie, calls me and says, Dad, some gentleman just called you. Coach Wooden? Holy so I cow. Called I called him. I said, hey, Coach Wooden. He goes, yeah, I know. Four kids. He said, what are you doing next week? You want to come by my house? So I went to his uh, condo and spent four hours with him. It's oh, maybe wow. one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest, uh, uh, you know, things that happened to me in my business life. But a true gentleman, a professional, spiritual, thoughtful, just a great human being. And we spent four hours talking business. In fact, I have it on a a video I have a YouTube library on in a, in that YouTube library are some of my coach Wooden uh, we we did a video for the conference but also he allowed me to video for about an hour with him and he was a gentleman and interestingly enough you know speakers out there and I'm speaking today you know we all you yeah. know, each speaker depending on how good and, and what your reputation is commands a certain price in the marketplace so I said to coach Wooden I said you know coach I said uh, you know, whatever your fee is, let me know, and I'll, you know, I'll make sure that we get we get it right back to you. He goes, what do you mean a fee? I said, well, coach, you know, he said, look, you asked me to do you a favor. I don't have no problem with this at all. I Are said, you well, serious? So then he said to me, would you be willing to make a donation to the Jimmy Valvano Fund? And I said, sure, coach, absolutely. And so we made a UPS a, a donation to the Jimmy Valvano Fund. But what a, what a person, right? Here he is, he's sitting there. Yeah, come on. I mean, I love UPS. I know my UPS driver. You know, he's really a great person. <laughs> Just a gentleman. So that I would say, from a business perspective, you know, my dad was a, was an influence in my early life. My wife has been a tremendous influence in my adult life. But I would say Coach Wooden would be that individual who really touched me. And I, you know, many of 
my thoughts were shaped as, as I grew as a leader uh, along his thought processes of, you know, just being a good, thoughtful, kind person, you know, leads to good leadership. And I, I love him too. And I love uh, – he's just virtuous and he taught virtue and, you know, your virtue leads you. And so a lot of these seem like the leadership skills that we might – or principles, I guess, a better word, that we might be losing – if we don't, you know, keep telling the stories of a John Wooden who had immense success, is he? I don't know. Is he still the winningest college coach, a championship winner? I guess. Well, I think I think now that you know, on the men's side, now that I think now that UConn has. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, with, with the women's UConn, team, yeah. Women's, yes, yeah. I think so. That surpassed him, but but, uh, but those see, principles, yeah. But it's interesting, though. One of the things that I think significantly changed for me was the way I viewed myself. So, and you know, it's funny. People say to me, you know, if, there, if there's an adjective that could describe you, what would that adjective be? And some people would use the word, you know, you know, different words to describe a leader. For me, it's thoughtful. And it's funny because people don't think of that word, but if someone said, well, Rocky Roman, I was a thoughtful leader, I would be very proud of that. Mm. And, and, and part of that came from my conversations with Coach Wooden and talking to Coach Wooden because he was a thoughtful person. He thought through things. And, you know, sometimes when people use the word thoughtful as a leader, they think, oh, you know, that means I'm easy. I gave yeah. away the store. I don't, can't hold people accountable. Oh, he's a bleeding heart liberal. What kind of, <laughs> what kind of person? No, thoughtful means you think through things, that you look at things from its widest consequences. You consider how it impacts people in their lives outside of work, potentially. And so that thoughtfulness, I think, is what makes you a well-rounded leader and what makes you that kind of person that people want to gravitate towards, that want to follow, that want to be part of. I want to be part of a group that has so-and-so in there as a leader. And so I think that thoughtfulness, and he was that thoughtful leader. You know, he, he thought through things. He looked at things from its widest consequences. He thought about people. You know, so I think that that probably was a significant kind of change for me as I look back on my career that, wow, you know what, that's important to be thoughtful, to think things through. No, I totally agree. That is um, – it's so powerful. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Rocky Romanella uh, from 360 Management and and uh, his great book, Tighten the Lug Nuts, The Principles of Balance Leadership. We're learning how to be true leaders and following um, – I guess, really, the the leadership of John Wooden, one of the greatest. We'll take a break, come back, continue the journey about moving people and uh, the legacy that a leader can leave in the lives of others. Stick with us. Welcome back. We are speaking uh, to Rocky Romanella, uh, a really well-known public speaker as well as uh, management consultant and owns a managing consulting firm, 360 Management Services. He's the founder and CEO there. Uh, also uh, had worked in, in uh, a lot of the rebranding initiatives and in franchising uh, the UPS store uh, and revolutionizing a $9 billion retail shipping business and business services market. So he's got a lot of management experience, and he's written a book, Tighten the Lug Nuts, The Principles of Balanced Leadership. And today we're picking his brain on Leadership 101. Rocky, thank you again for your time. 
Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Great learning for, I think, all of us. When you talk about leadership and and influence, it's really about, um, like you're talking and, and, and suggesting, this is about having vision and influencing others. But another thing you bring up in the book are three major constituents that leadership that leaders should make a priority. So when we're targeting our leadership, I guess, who are we targeting it to? So I, I have this concept that uh, has really, I think, been, uh, you know, served me well, and I think is, is such a great approach to business and in life in this concept of balanced leadership is the three key constituents that are your customers, your people, and your stakeholders. And I think what happens is is that, you know, we're excited about making a, bit, uh, a, a decision. You know, for example, we, we, we developed a new product. We're going to go to market. You know, the marketing people have done all their research. They've done their trial tests. They've, they've interviewed customers. And so everyone's excited about the new product. You know, and of course, the CFO, he or she's been sitting there banging away on their calculator. We can make some money on it. This is the right price. This is the margin. So they're all excited about it. But in this balanced leadership world, we lost sight of our people, right? No one sits around a table generally and says, well, how about our people? What's the training we're going to give them? Mm. Do they understand what role they're going to play? Do they understand how we're going to position this, why this product's important to our business? And if we do have a service disconnect, how do we, you know, how do we handle that service disconnect? We, we tend to lose sight of that because we're all excited about the new product and we're all excited that we're going to make some money, but we lose sight of our customers. And so and, and as I sat around the rooms and, we, and talked to our people about the decisions, you know, I, I always, well, let's, let's think like a customer. Let's go for our customer. Let's, let's feel like valued individuals. Do we keep, do our, are people involved in this process? Do they understand what role they're going to play? And then act like an owner. If this was our business, if we own this 100%, if we own this company 100%, would we make this decision? And so I've always felt like those three constituents, if you kept them in balance, you'd make much better decisions. You know, your implementations would be, you know, you're always going to have some issues on implementation, but you have a better chance of a flawless implementation because those three key constituents are, you know, part of that process. And so that's that, that balanced leadership concept. And the three key constituents are your customers, your people, and your stakeholders. Mm. When you think about leadership too, and, and you think about it being influence, it seems like I can I can influence people positively or negatively and still get them to do something. Um, so I'm assuming we want to influence positively, but what are some of the negative things that we're seeing that you're seeing in, in, you know, in corporations today, in the world today that might not be considered great leadership? And then what are some of the fixes? Well, I think it, it starts with the whole concept of that values matter, right? And so, cause you, th- you think about it for a second, right? I mean, how, how is it that great corporations with, you know, over a hundred years of brand recognition make some of the decisions that you see that just, you know, in, 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 in one newspaper headlines ruins a brand that you've been trying to create for 150 oh. years. And I think, yeah. right. I mean, you just scratch your head sometimes. You think, how does that happen? And it, it not only does it happen with businesses, it happens with people's personal brands. You know, like here's a person that's had to, been viewed in the marketplace as an outstanding leader, whether it's in life or politics or picket, entertainment, sports, and yet in, in, in one action. And I think it starts with three questions that you have to ask yourself and a company has to ask itself. And then, at le- then from that, those three questions, things start, you'll start to see how things start to either go in a good way or a bad way. The first question is, who are you? What do you stand for, and what won't you compromise? And many people can't even tell you who they are. Right. Like, who are you? 
You know, what do you stand for? Are you going to be a good, thoughtful leader? Do you never compromise integrity? You know, in business, you would say, you know, what are the things I won't compromise? I won't compromise integrity. I won't compromise safety. You know, though, you got to know those three things, right? Who are you, what you stand for, and what you won't compromise. I will tell you, number three, you're going to get challenged on all the time. You know, what won't you compromise? You may say you won't compromise on this, but now all of a sudden things got tight. Yeah. Well, do I take the shortcut? Do I do the right thing? From that then leads the decisions that you scratch your head, right? I mean, how is it that over the course of time, you know, you look at the whole situation that's happening today in the news with Uber, and you scratch your head and you think, that's, it's like when the, when the police officer pulls you over and you say to him, I can't believe it. It's the first time I was ever speeded. Hmm. How does this happen to me, right? Well, no, it's a pattern of conduct, right? Now you start to say, well, how does this pattern of conduct happen? And somewhere along the line, this is the part that always frustrated me in, in business, you know, whether, you know, whether in business that I actually was part of or saw or looked at business, there are always opportunities along the way for somebody to raise their hand and say, hey, something's not right here. Right. This doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. The question is, do you set the tone from the top as the leader? And I think so to answer your question, I'm sorry, in a little of a more of a long-winded way, once you answer those three questions, then it's the tone you set from the top. Do you do you have that environment where people are willing to walk in your office, close the door, and say, hey, Rock, you know, I know this is what you think. I know this is your aspirations, but this isn't what our people are hearing or seeing, or this is not the, – the, they're not living or – or acting out the view that you think. Mm. But someone's got to be willing to walk in and tell you that. Yeah, and I guess that's the problem is when it just seems like the bigger you get, you know, um, the the less accurate data you might be getting. People are, you know, scrubbing the information to you, a lot of yes people around you. How do you as a leader cut through that? I guess part of it is demanding demanding that honesty. Well, get out of your office. I mean, it was funny. I was, I was, I won't go through the reasons why and how it happened. But I was sitting there talking to a couple other CEOs when I so when I retired from UPS, I became the CEO of a small telecom company. So I was talking to some other CEOs at a meeting we were at, and there a couple of them had been on on uh, the show uh, Undercover Boss, and hmm. a great show, I guess. And uh, so this has nothing. This is not evaluation or criticism of that. Let me please say that so yeah. I don't get myself into trouble. But I could never be on Undercover Boss. It would break my heart to think <laughs> that nobody knows who I am. True. Right? Don't you really want to be chairs? Everybody knows your name. I mean, isn't that? I mean, now in large companies, it's tough, but people got to get the perception. So you got to get out of your office and walk the talk. Get out there and look. Ask people questions. Walk around. And then the other thing is, there's some logic checks there. I mean, if if, if you're saying to yourself, "Hey, I am, I'm going to start this process," or I got this new program that says if we can sign up all these new accounts. We're going to go deeper and wider in customers. Your race is as hard as you can to sign up new accounts, but you have, but your revenue doesn't equal the same growth in accounts. Don't you tilt your head and say, wait a minute, something's not right here. The if-then goes yeah. too. Or are you just so happy you got what you wanted? Right, because that's what ends up happening. Everybody, you set out a goal and everybody wants to please you. you know? so, so I used to always say whenever we hit a goal, it was funny. Whenever we would hit a goal, we'd sit at a staff meeting and say, hey, we hit our production number. And I would look over at the industrial engineering manager or look over at my finance person and say, you know, at the break, hey, look, I'm happy that we hit the numbers. I don't want to be the negative Nelly guy. Somebody better go double check and make sure the numbers are right. <laughs> are they really right? Or even just finding out, okay, so we hit our goal, we nailed it, but what were the concerns? What am I, right. what am I not hearing 
about that that might matter tomorrow. Right, right. And and if you walk around as as the leader, you know, and and you ask a question, hey, how are things going? You know, people are going to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. And you and you put it, and you got to keep it in context. I understand that, but you have to be willing to walk the talk, to leave your office. You know, it's like they used to say. You know, like my, both my boys played hockey, and you know, it used to always be, you know, 100 percent of the shots you don't take, don't go in. Well, if I never leave my office, I'm never going to see anything bad. Right. It's, I'm never going to say anything bad. No one's going to. No one. No one likes to bring you bad news, right? Yeah, yeah. No one's going to make a a journey to your office to lay down the bad. I mean, I guess until it's too late, right? Right. That's right. the only time oh, you yeah. get the bad news is when it's maybe too late to fix. Right. Right. And and but but all along the way, so you always have to ask yourself, you know, when, when situations are happening and they happen, uh, you always have to ask yourself. Where along in, in this process could somebody have raised their hand? And if they didn't, why? Is it the tone we're setting in our side of work? Because let's face it, in all these corporations that have had problems, you know, throughout the last couple of years, celebrated corporations, you knew, you know, if you and I went into their break room, we would see posters all over the place. Here's the 800 line. Here's the compliance number. Right. right? Here, right. So, so it's all well documented. It's not like the communication department didn't send out this year's notice for, you know, whistleblower hotline number. No, it's whether somebody's willing to either A, pick up the phone and use it, or B, think you're going to do something about it. Hmm. Well, then that's, if you think about it, if, if that's the case, then you have to look within your, inside yourself and say, did I set the right tone from the top? Do my people really think that if it gets to me, I'm going to do the right things with it? Or do they, th- or do they believe they don't really care? They're just focused on this. And that's why balance is so important. If all you are is focused on, on performance or productivity, you know, then the question is people believe that you'll compromise other things along the way. Well, that's the wrong message that you're sending. Yeah. And I guess – you, in fact, you even do it yourself on your YouTube channel. Um, we now have so many technology devices and mediums, Facebook pages, all this other, all these other tools. We we don't have very many excuses to not be communicating to our people anymore, do we? Well, that's true, but we do have a good excuse, like we talked in the beginning, about not going down and talking to them face to face. Yeah, exactly. Well, because because everybody's got a lot. You know, uh, what's the right word? Courage when they're not sitting across the table from somebody or sitting across mm. the room from. Them. But you know, so from that text, I got a lot of courage. But now, can I walk in and sit down and say, "Hey, you know what? We've got a problem here. We've got, you know, what's how can we get to? You know, how do we improve this situation? What help do you need from me? You know, th- you know, those kinds of conversations." are difficult conversations to have, but are necessary to have. You know, yeah. I, wonder, I, I, you know I teach a class at uh, Seton Hall University on why values matter and, uh, and having difficult conversations. And, and that's sometimes the hardest thing is having that difficult conversation. So now what happens is you avoid it, you avoid it, you avoid it. And now all of a sudden, you got, now, now the, you know, the wheels, of, as, I, as I say in the book, tighten the lug nuts, you didn't tighten the loose lug nuts when they were important. Well, now the wheel falls off, hmm. now it's urgent. Oh, okay, I didn't talk to you about your attendance problem, and now all of a sudden you have 45 times, and now i got, now I got no choice but to talk to you. And you look at me like, well, the other 44 times didn't seem to matter. Yeah. So now all of a sudden the world's coming to an end, you're going to fire me. Well, how about when it was at four? Could you have helped me along the way? I mean, it's still our responsibility as leader to help, to help get our people. I mean, our ideal cases that we're not firing people, that we're changing behaviors, 
we're, we're training them, we're teaching them. Now, you're going to lose some people along the way, but at least your content is clear. You've given them every opportunity. They're making the decision not to change. It's not that you you know, didn't take the time to, to give them the vision, to help them tra- change, or to you know, help them see that it's time for them to change. Yeah. Rocky, great stuff. So appreciate your insight. And uh, the book, again, Tighten the Lug Nuts, The Principles of Balanced Leadership. And also be sure to go check him out on YouTube, uh, Rocky Romanella. And uh, you can go see that, the Madden video, or the Wooden video, and uh, all of his great insights there as well. Leadership 101, folks. What it comes down to, it sounds like, again, is people and values. People and values, they got to go hand in hand. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up hour number two of the program. Stick with us. One Philadelphia teenager's mom took his uh, prom to the extreme, spending $25,000 on a camel, three tons of sand, and exotic cars. He brought uh, three dates, which seems, you know, that in and of itself seems a little extreme. See, it's funny. Everything you said before that didn't seem that excessive (laughs) until you got to the number of dates. You're like, how many dates? Uh, All in custom-made gowns, by the way, and they all, and he himself wore three different outfits. Saudia Schuler. Um, says she had thought of sending her her only son, Johnny Eden Jr., to Dubai for a visit. Instead, she decided to bring Dubai to Philadelphia for the formal dance. She brought the sand and the camel into the neighborhood for photos. Luxury cars, including a Rolls-Royce and a Lamborghini, were on loan for the evening. Schuler says it was all worth it. And by the way, she says she fought cancer and suffered from a stroke in the past few years. So she told herself if she was going to make through make it through all of this, she would put on a big prom for her son. See, now that's sweet. It's sweet. But if I were the kid, I'd be like... Can can you just pay for my college tuition? Well, yeah. Would you be, or would you be like, holy cow, I'm riding a camel through Philadelphia. How All cool right, am that'd I? That'd be pretty cool. I guess the Lamborghini would actually be a better ride myself. I don't know. But this reminds me of those um, the TV shows where they show the prom and the excessive payment and who how parents are spending $100,000 to get some big singer to come sing at the prom. and I don't know. It's it's hard enough for me to get my kids to go to a prom, you know. The tickets were way too expensive. They were, I think, I remember them being around a hundred dollars. Really? And that does that doesn't include the tux for a prom ticket. Sometimes you rent the limo and a camel. You got to take pictures, buy a corsage. <laughs> you know what? I think we're, we may be we may be making it more complicated than it needs to be. You go out to dinner. Dinner's so $25,000 sounds about right. <laughs> well, I guess apparently if you want to have a dating life or you want your child to have a dating life, you're, you better get ready to spend. Uh, you, you probably do not need to bring Dubai to Dubuque. <laughs> you don't need to do that. Just let it go. Let it go. All right, folks, we'll take a break. Hour number two of the program. It's in the can. Stick with us if you want more information or want to go back and find our old segments. Go to iTunes. Go to Stitcher.com to tune in. BYURadio.org. You can look it up on television or MattTownsend.com. Check it out. We'll be right back. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, friends. Welcome back. Hope you're having a great day as you drive about the city and just dealing with life. It's Thursday, which is the day before Friday, which is the day before your weekend. So it's getting exciting. Uh, Top of the morning to you or bottom of the morning, depending on where you are in the country. This is the show where we give you the latest, greatest information to help you live healthier lives. That's the goal. And every once in a while, we actually accomplish our goal, which makes it even more exciting. Today, we will uh, be doing it again, performing um, stressful tasks. If you have a difficult thing you've got to do, I don't know, like shooting a free throw in the championship, uh, the world championship game of the NBA, then it's a big moment. And how do you get rid of the jitters? Jeffrey does a little jitter dance, which is kind of quirky. We play that little Irish jig through a lot of our commercial breaks. Yeah. And I really go to town. You, I've never seen a guy jig like you. <laughs> in fact, you put the I in the jig. Hmm. Don't know what that means, but you done dare do it. Do it. Uh, we are talking today with a researcher out of Berkeley about how you can get rid of the jitters before um, you have to perform or do something. So if it's if it's public speaking, how to get rid of the fear before you go on. If it's um, you know a big meeting you got to get to. If it's asking that girl out on a date. And one of the keys is to have a pre-performance ritual. Juliana Schroeder will be joining us to talk uh, about some of the research they're doing at Berkeley. It's pretty cool stuff, actually. She's going to teach us how to make up a ritual. It's, it's more complicated than you think. You know, you got to think it through. And there's, some, there's certain parts of the ritual that really matter that you don't want to lose. So we'll get to all of that fun. Plus, some other headlines are coming up um, that we've got to get to, including... KFC is uh, is going to make space news. They will be uh, launching a sandwich, a KFC sandwich, into the stratosphere. Many would be wondering why. Why? Yeah, why? But others would be saying, why not? Why not put some greasy chicken into the stratosphere? Do, do you think it's edible after it enters orbit? Well, won't it freeze eventually? Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming it's just going to be in a container that will... It freezes, and then on reentry, it'll heat up nicely. So well, do you send it up raw, so it'll be perfectly no, cooked No, I would probably back? pre-cook it, and then oh. what you can do is any space alien, Martian, could then capture it and then put it in the space microwave and then have themselves a little bit of America. Hmm. If it can withstand all that space throws at it, it's probably a good sign we shouldn't be eating it. Well, that's kind of negative. Should we represent our country with a chicken sandwich? Fried chicken is probably I mean, accurate. If the sandwich does come in contact with a extraterrestrial visitor, then their first is this the sort first of thought, their first sort of, a, of contact of the world. with our planet yeah. will be a chicken sandwich from a fast food place. Well, that's what we're sending from the United States. I mean, in yeah. India, they might send a curry dish. Is that what we want to represent our country with? A fast food sandwich. Well, um, does it rep- does it accurately I think represent? Very accurate. Okay, accurate. Hey, well, let's do it. If you had waffles and chicken, uh-huh. that might represent us. 
what, a Walmart smiley face. There if we made a capsule, yeah. we could just put about 10 things in the capsule. Hmm. I think a KFC sandwich may, might not. I mean, everyone would think McDonald's maybe is more, but that's just America. You're talking global. Right. And KFC has global they, reach also. They're everywhere. You know what I'm, I'm hoping? I'm hoping that Pluto will pick up this sandwich and eat it. Yeah. He's been really down on his luck, Did, out of money, digging through the yeah, garbage. I know. And there's a lot of garbage up there. But, and it's hard to be a dwarf planet, kicked out of planetdom. Dumped. Dumped, and then now you're just what is he? He's not. He's not even a dwarf planet. He's not a planet anymore. What is he? He's a. He's just a dwarf sphere. I don't know what they call him. I hope he's not listening. I do too. I hate it when Pluto gets mad. So we'll get to all of that fun um, uh, about uh, what's going into space. Kind of crazy information. Plus. Um, We'll be visiting with our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show. I'm going to have them decide who's going to win, Mayweather or McGregor. It's a battle royale. Yeah. With cheese. Mm. And then we'll do a hero story. And you know it's going to come out of the baseball shooting yesterday in D.C. Lots to get to, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up? Russian President Vladimir Putin thinks it's weird that former FBI Director James Comey would leak memos recounting his conversations with President Trump. It sounds very strange when the head of security services writes down a conversation with the commander-in-chief and then leaks it to the media through his friend, Putin said Thursday during a live call-in show as he dismissed Comey's assertion that Russia definitely interfered in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Putin suggested Comey's leaks weren't that different from those from former NSA contractor Edward Snowden, the whistleblower who leaked the top-secret documents revealing the NSA was spying on American citizens. Russia has granted Snowden political asylum and... uh, and resisted the U.S. government's calls for extradition, the Russian president joked that if Comey faces pressure, then we are happy to offer him political asylum, too. Hmm. So Comey has an option. He could so go to Russia. Comey could go to Russia, hang out with... Uh, with Vlad. Well, Vlad and who's the Edward. other... Uh, yeah, Edward Ed, Snowden. Ed Snowden. Eddie. Eddie and Comey. They could, they could start a new show on Russian television. Yeah, they could stream it. The Eddie and Comey show. It'd be great. I think they call him Snowball, actually. Yeah, Snowball. In other news, DC police Thursday or today will announce charges against 12 of the Turkish security agents who brutally beat protesters outside the Turkish ambassador's residence in Washington in May following President Erdogan's White House meeting with President Donald Trump, a U.S. official tells the Associated Press. Though the agents have all left the United States, seven will nonetheless be charged with felonies and five with misdemeanors, a U.S. official told the uh, news, Newswire, Washington's mayor and police commissioner, will formally announce the charges at a Thursday news conference. This was a crazy situation. You see men in suits, who are yeah. obviously security people, right. just beating protesters outside the embassy. Yeah, And you're like, wait, guys, you can't do that here. Maybe in your country. Did you guys get the memo? No beating. So now they're going to finally do something legally wow. about that. The U.S. Coast Guard has given an all-clear to reopen a terminal at the Port of Charleston in South Carolina, lifting a lockdown that was imposed Wednesday night after a threat of a dirty bomb on a container ship, which is a small uh, nuclear, nuclear device, device of some kind. Uh, the original source of the report said that four containers aboard this big, huge uh, cargo ship were a potential threat. That source has been detained and is undergoing questioning. Wasn't, wasn't this in the in the television series 24? Yes. 
I remember that. Probably about seven other TV shows also. Okay. Uh, I think, yeah, that one took place between 724 and uh, 824 yeah, p.m. That was a good, that was yeah. a good time. Um, and another story, this is actually a positive story. Okay. For the first time in their lives, twins Aaron and Abby Delaney are able to lie side by side in their own beds. Until a week ago, the 10-month-old baby girls from North Carolina were joined at the head, right at the top of their wow. heads as they're, they're conjoined. Uh, it is an uncommon type of conjoined twins. More typically, conjoined twins are born joined at the chest, abdomen, or pelvis. Yeah. The condition occurs when, in the early stages of the development, the embryo only partially separates to form two babies. Surgeon at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, otherwise known as CHOP, Children's Chop. Hospital of Philadelphia, completed the girls' uh, separation June 6th. The 11-hour surgery included a 30-member team of doctors. Holy cow. And then once they had them separated, oh, they, cool. they split into teams of 15 yeah. to continue team taking up. care of each one. By the way, do you think it's a good name, CHOP, for a surgical center? <laughs> That's kind of my thought. <laughs> I'm reading along, and I'm like, they, they abbreviate it here. It goes uh, C-H-O-P, and I go, CHOP? How cool for these girls, hmm. their lives changed forever it said they had speech therapists i bet you need well i'm sure you need them they're they're 10 months old well but i guess you're supposed to be able to do something with some form of speech by you know early on which is crazy your child's a screamer well yeah she just screams at random times she just does the random ah but in i got a video it's funny but like in two months she's supposed to be talking my daughter not talking but well i mean saying words well or yeah maybe vocalizing more Maybe that's what they're trying to do is get these children to vocalize. So first she's going to be mobile. Then she's going to start like mm-hmm. talking back. Yeah. And eventually she'll want the car. So <sighs> when I lived in Seattle, there was a Dr. Snip, but he was a different kind of doctor. Mm. I don't even want to know. What kind of doctor was he? Are you Dr. Snip? Yes, I am. Finally. Yes. Parking space in Hong Kong has set a world record selling for $664,200. This is the this is a building that you can park your car in. One single parking space. 600 and something. $64,000. Unbelievable. The 188 square foot spot. 188 square, square foot. Spot. Square foot. 188 square feet. Oh wow. First floor luxury apartment complex it's it's on this first floor of a luxury complex near the harbor front was purchased by an executive director of an investment firm properties prices uh, property prices are insanely high in hong kong where last month someone paid three billion for a commercial lot in a business and shopping district and small businesses are closing over the high rent costs yeah so if you want to park your car that specific spot six thousand dollars or six hundred thousand for that kind of money you better be parked like Right outside the Taj Mahal or something, you know the yeah. Taj Mahal. That that one spot right in front of the Taj Mahal that ruins all the pictures. Right. Yeah. When that one car is parked there, and it's like a Winnebago. That's <laughs> the thing I don't understand. With a bunch of stickers on the back. We went to the Grand Canyon. Um. Wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah. You'd think that somebody with that much money would just park their car, have a oh. have a limo service. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, what would you want to drive? Get an Uber. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, uh, KFC, they're, they're launching a sandwich into the stratosphere. And so the way they do this is they, there's uh, new high-altitude stratolite balloons. And what they're going to do is um, officially put a sandwich, one of the nummy, yummy, yummy KFC sandwiches on a balloon. And then you just let the balloon go and it goes up into the stratosphere. And uh, the the idea is it's it's just a test flight, right? But uh, 
It's a remote-controlled, uncrewed balloon, and uh, we'll be able to carry the KFC payload nearly uh, near the stratosphere for at least four days to test the vehicle for commercial audiences. So I think the way the balloon doesn't pop way up there is they rub the balloon with the fried chicken, and mm. it, it adds a protective uh, outer layer. Yeah. Just the same that's on the, the layer of the chicken that protects our insides. You know what? I think they're – that sounds gross, and it, it seems like it would attract seagulls. But, <laughs> well, they um, would be dead, you know, by yeah, the time, by the time they, they get up to the stratosphere. Yeah. Um, so they're they're going to have a live stream of the sandwich as they go into the stratosphere to see what happens with the sandwich. And if this works, then eventually they can use it for other commercial act activities. Maybe you could send a pizza up there. Or maybe you could eventually have floating up in space a balloon where people could live and then food could be delivered. I'm telling you, this, this may just be system. this may just be Pluto, you know, ordering out. But I don't think it, it's still in the stratosphere. So it, it's not going to be anywhere near Pluto. Well, they are willing to go to great lengths to deliver you great food. Yeah, they are. Finger licking good. Snay FC. Snay FC. We, well, we can't say. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, probably a, a good thing, I guess. Nothing better than, you know, having a sandwich that's made it to the stratosphere. A new hero for all of us. Actually, I can think of something better. The sandwich making its way to my stomach. Mm. That would be way better. Way better. And less expensive. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Let's uh, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking rituals before stressful tasks. It can increase your performance. You just need to put together a pre-performance ritual. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Imagine these situations. You're about to walk into a big job interview. You're about to make a special presentation in work or maybe even go out on a first date with somebody that could be your future spouse. Did you feel those pregame jitters when you're thinking about those things? Some people swear by pre-performance rituals, and they say those pre-performance rituals get them through the important nerve-wracking events. But does do these rituals really work? Here to answer the question today is Dr. Juliana Schroeder. She's an assistant professor of management organization at UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, and uh, she has herself been doing a lot of research on the subject. Uh, Juliana, thank you so much for your time today and being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. This is um, – I think this is a pretty interesting thing and whether it's like watching a basketball player as they you know, get ready for their free throw and they, they're, they're mumbling some words like Carl Malone used to do or a, a baseball mm-hmm. player um, that has some routine about throwing dirt on their bat and cleaning it off. These rituals, according to your re- research, they actually eliminate stress? Yes, that's right. So um, there's tons of correlational research out there, which just suggests that, you know, for example, some athletes do perform rituals before a game. Um, and there's some correlational research that actually suggests that athletes that have more elaborate pre-performance rituals. So, for example, think of like a basketball player making a free throw shot that spins the basketball like three times before making that shot. Yeah. So the more sort of elaborate that free throw ritual is, 
um, the better those athletes tend to perform. But it's just the thing is with that research, it's just correlational. So, for example, there could be some um, very sort of uninteresting explanations for it. So mm. maybe the athletes that have the more elaborate pre-performance rituals, um, they're the ones who tend to practice more. Yeah, right? right. So that's why they're better. They actually are more skilled. <laughs> yeah, they've been coached so, on having that. Yeah. Right. 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 And um, and then of course. Um, there are, you know, sort of pre-performance routines that are meant to sort of do um, things like increase concentration and focus. And um, those are really, you know, rational. Like, so, you know, simulating the basketball going through the hoop um, actually helps people to focus and concentrate and get the basketball through the hoop. And so it's not sort of surprising necessarily that there's that correlational link. And it comes up in more than just um, sports domains. So, for example, there's correlational work that looks at um, occupational hazards and ritual formation. So as it turns out, more dangerous occupations um, are associated with more like superstitions huh. and rituals. Oh, interesting. And so, yeah. you know, and so that's interesting, too. But then again, like you could think of alternative explanations for why that might be. So there's all this sort of correlational work and nobody knows like, do rituals actually do something? Like, can they causally affect um, performance, even if they're not sort of necessarily, you know, increasing concentration in the moment? Or so what, like, what's going on? And can they causally um, affect performance? And so essentially to do that, you need to run experiments. And that's what you did. Um, yeah, exactly. But, so, and you, but you did it you specifically know, it, for anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Like, does does the ritual... Does it uh, uh, correlate to um, – oh, no, not correlate. Yours would be causal. Does having a pre-performance right. ritual has a ca- have a causal influence on decreasing anxiety? Yeah, that's exactly right, Matt. So we actually um, were inspired by some recent – so, you know, a lot of research on ritual has been in the sociological, sort of anthropological literature. Yeah. And, and so it's kind of archival and correlational. And so just recently, like experimental psychologists have started really looking into this question. Um, there's also some work in like clinical psychology, like OCD rituals. Huh. Um, and so, and so, you know, and so there's some work that suggests like um, people with OCD rituals help them to gain better sense of control, but nothing has been done in sort of social psychology where they look at sort of just normal everyday people, whether or not using rituals for them can do anything. And so, there's um, a paper that sort of looked at this first before we even looked at it, where they looked at how rituals can affect grief. And so um, they actually experimentally manipulated feelings of loss in the laboratory, and they looked at this sort of in a real-world context. Huh. And it's really clever how they did this, actually. So, you know, what they're trying to get at is understanding, like, how people use rituals when, you know, a loved one has died, right. for example. Um, but you can't really do that in the laboratory, right? You can't, like, kill yeah, somebody. Right. Sorry. That's a step too <laughs> yeah. far. Right. Right. So the, the Institutional Review Board would not approve that. Right, right. <laughs> so what they did is they, um, for example, had, they would give out a lottery where, there are three people that come into the lab, and one of them is going to get um, $100, okay? And so, uh, or maybe two of them would get it. So they give out, and they actually give out $100 huh. to one or two people. And then the last person doesn't get it. So they feel like they kind of had a loss. Yeah, they've lost, <laughs> right. 
Right. They lost the lottery. <laughs> and then they and then they um, randomly assigned some of those people who lost to do a ritual, and some of them um, don't get to do a ritual. And the people who do rituals, after they had sort of this, they have this experience of having lost some money. Um, they feel better. They feel like they have more control over their environment, and they they're less likely to feel sort of upset or sad hmm. about that loss. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, and and so that was kind of clever. And so so it's sort of they the mechanism that they were looking at was feelings of of control. Hmm. And so we kind of thought looked at that research and said, hey, maybe this also applies to you know these more high arousal emotional states feelings of anxiety so if it's it's about kind of control then maybe rituals can reduce anxiety and so that should matter for performance domains interesting and then you performed your own study and i love i love the the thing the the test that you induced anxiety with was they had to sing or perform um a, a journey song I think it was a journey song, um, and that would stress everybody out. And then you allowed some to have a, a performance ritual and some not to. Right, right, exactly. Uh, you've, you've definitely read the paper. So we were looking for really high anxiety situations that we could put laboratory participants in. And so the first one we thought of was, of course, karaoke singing, <laughs> like singing in front of yeah. an audience of your peers. <laughs> How stressful. And so... Yeah, it's stressful. And, and, but, you know, what's also nice about that context is that there are um, karaoke singing machines that can keep track of people's actual performance. Huh. So it, um, you sing into a microphone and um, it keeps track of how on pitch you are, how on rhythm you are, and gives you a score at the end yeah. between zero and 100 based on how well you sang the song. And so we, had, we brought people into the lab and we had them sing Journey, Don't Stop Believing. <laughs> Right. That's great. So, <laughs> I mean, it's a karaoke must, yeah. by the way. That's one you got to have. Everyone knows that song. Right. Exactly. It's just, um, <laughs> but so it still stressed people in. out. Yes, it's stressful. They have to, they come into the lab, they're not, they don't know what they're going to be doing. And then we, we spring this on them. Like, hmm. hey, you're going to be singing this song in front of everybody. And so people all get really nervous. In fact, in one of the studies, we measured their heart rate. Yeah. And so their heart rate sort of spikes as soon as they get that information. Unbelievable. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then we put them in one of three different experimental conditions. So we either um, give them a ritual to do, um, and I can tell you what that ritual is in a second. Yeah. Or we just tell them to try to stay calm, try to calm down before your performance. Yeah. <laughs> so they do that for about the same amount of time. Or there's a control group where we just um, let them just sit there and say, um, please wait a moment while we set up the equipment. Hmm. Okay, so they do nothing. Right. Um, and, and so in the ritual condition, we use this ritual that it's technically, I mean, it's made up, but it's composed of these um, steps that can have some symbolic value, and it's been used in prior research. So uh, we ask them, it's five steps. We ask them to first draw a picture of how they're feeling, hmm. sprinkle salt on the drawing, oh, wow. count up to five out loud, crinkle up your paper, and then throw the paper in the trash. Wow. And that so it's elaborate, and, yeah. but it has all the characteristics of a ritual that um, prior research has shown. Like these are the aspects that compose a ritual. I guess that's what actuates or activates the power of the ritual. 
so, I mean, it's actually a really interesting question about what what is it that makes a ritual as composed as as compared to other um, other other behaviors like a routine or habit. And uh, as it turns out, sort of rituals tend to be um, what we call them a sort of fixed sequence of actions, and they tend to be characterized by rigidity um, and re- repetition yep. uh, and symbolism and meaning. So it's got to have some connection, and, yeah. Yeah, and they also tend to be um, causally opaque is the term they use, which means that they have to have some component in them that's not necessarily instrumental. Okay. So, for example, like consider setting a table. Um, so that's, you know, that's really instrumental because you have to have like a plate to eat. Right. Right. Um, or, and, but the way that people set the table sometimes, like imagine that there's like a fixed order that you always do it. Like you always have to put the plates down first. Yeah. And then you do the knives, and maybe the napkin has to be folded in this particular way. Um, so some of those aspects of setting the table might actually be more ritualistic. Interesting. For example. And, and so yeah, I, I, and, I, I start not to interrupt, but I guess what uh, you found then is those that um, did the ritual of the three groups, those that did the ritual, um, they, they actually did see a, a causal effect of, of anxiety dropping. About singing exactly. their journey. So we had the three groups um, doing a ritual, not doing anything, and then um, just trying to calm down. And out of those three groups, the two groups who just tried to calm down and did nothing, their heart rate stayed high. They self-reported that they had more anxiety, and then they performed worse. Hmm. And the group that did the ritual, their heart rate went down again. They self-reported that they had less anxiety. So that's just on, you know, on a Likert scale, how much anxiety do you have right now? And then they performed better. Oh, wow. Interesting. You know, Juliana, let's take a break, come back, and I want to hear what this means to you, me, to all of our lives. How do we take this to the workplace now? We'll take a break more with Dr. Juliana Schroeder and her work on pre-game or pre-performance rituals. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you get rid of the uh, pre-performance jitters. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about how to get rid of those pregame jitters. If you have to go perform some, uh, you know, some if, at some event, maybe deliver a speech, or just going out on a date, or something that makes you a little nervous, it's possible that having a pre-performance ritual, like all the big athletes and and pro baseball players, pro basketball players do before they have to get up to bat, having a ritual actually they're finding out may be able to decrease. Your anxiety levels, according to some research out of uh, Berkeley, Juliana, Dr. Juliana Schroeder joins us. She is an assistant professor of management organization at UC Berkeley Haas School of Business, and she's been spending um, some time recently researching rituals. Juliana, thank you again for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is this is pretty good. So causally, I guess, from your research, we we see that at least performing that, those rituals um, decreases the anxiety around singing uh, Don't Stop Believing, a journey song in front of your friends. Um, Where do we take this going forward? How could I use rituals then, just using, I guess, uh, your knowledge about pre-performance rituals, how how can I decrease my jitters before an event? 
Yeah, great question. So um, whenever you are about to do something that creates a lot of anxiety, um, so you'll feel sort of the high arousal, like your palms might get sweaty, those sort of biological signals, um, it, it, it's sort of a great idea to try to do something cognitively, psychologically that will help to calm you down. And let me just say right here that um, there's a lot of research that says trying to calm down or telling people to try to stay calm is like one of the worst things that you can do. (laughs) Right. So, you know, people's intuition is like, okay, I'll just, you know, sit, sit quietly and like try to calm myself down. And that actually very often will backfire because it creates this rumination of like, you're just thinking in circles and like trying to control your anxiety, but it's hard to control. And so then people feel more anxious. And so, that can be a bad thing to do. And right. so instead, we, yeah, I think this research sort of points to um, a new type of intervention, which is trying to perform a, a ritual. And some people have developed their own rituals. In fact, you know, we asked like hundreds of participants in our own studies whether they have their own rituals that they perform um, prior to sort of these high anxiety tasks. And about half of our um, about half the people in our studies um, say that they can think of some sort of semi-ritual that they do. Hmm. Um, some of them are more simple than others. But so if you, don't, if you don't already have a ritual that you typically do, you might think of just trying to develop something simple to kind of help clear your mind and, and get rid of those um, jitters, as you call them. Yeah. And, yeah, and so then the question becomes um, – how should you develop this ritual? Yeah, that's what, yeah. And so, yeah, and so I think it's really important that it's something meaningful to you. So something, and, and our work actually shows that it helps if it's connected to the task at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, if you're about to start singing, you might want to maybe do a few like warm up <laughs> yeah. um, exercises, like maybe do a do re mi scale. <laughs> Um, and so the more connected it is to the task at hand, that, that can be helpful. And then um, I, had, I had talked about some of those key aspects that characterize rituals. So they're repetitive. And that re- repetition is actually really important for clearing your mind and reducing anxiety. Um, there's actually interesting research that shows that if um, people are, in a really, are put into a really anxious sort of mindset, then they naturally, sort of in a, in a subsequent task, um, will perform movements that are more sort of repetitive and rigid, sort of as almost like an intuitive, like human nature way of trying to get rid of that anxiety. Mm. And so, yeah, and so when you're coming up with your ritual, I think, you know, making sure that it's multiple steps and it has repetition in there, and then it needs to be done exactly sort of the same way every time. Right. So you want to make sure that you aren't sort of just changing the steps every time that kind of takes away from the meaning, makes it much more of a routine. If you want it to be a ritual, it has to be exactly the same order of performance. Right. Okay. And and if you keep it consistent, does it matter if it's if it's kind of a mental ritual versus a physiological ritual? Like we always hear about taking deep breaths and that kind of, you know, physiologically we know that that can reset you. Um but or or is a mental ritual enough? Yeah, that's a great question. We've actually been trying to um study that. I think the physical behaviors are pretty important. So I think having some sort of um, embodied aspect where you're 
moving in some way, you have gestures involved. I think, I think that matters and that can help. Um, so, uh, as you know, there's sort of this body mind connection, yeah. right? Our minds are situated within our bodies. And so, um, sometimes if you can't really control your mind, and so it can be really hard when you're feeling like strong emotions to just harness those emotions. And, and that's kind of all that research on rumination that I mentioned. Right. It's hard to just, you know, do something in your mind. But if you start with your body where you can sort of perform some simple sort of movements with your body, that can actually, you know, reflect um, back towards your mind. That's so amazing. I might, I might suggest, you know, starting with the body. Yeah. Because we do see athletes do that. And, you know, e- even what they're doing is connected to their game. It's connected. It's their swing. It's and they, and there is that it's almost like they let their body just move naturally and they've over time connected their mind to that movement. So I guess this works mm-hmm. just as well in a corporate setting. So, you know, if I'm going to go present a workshop or whatever and that's my job, I could I could just, you know, practice a story or speak out or do the story, the first story I'm going to tell out, just do it in the room or whatever. I mean, I guess it doesn't matter as long as it's like you're saying, kind of predictable, repetitive, consistent, connected. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, actually, this research has really changed my own life because I have um, a, a lot of fear of public speaking, as many people do. Yeah. And uh, so that's a really sort of high anxiety. And in my job, I have to speak publicly all the time. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, you know, constantly teaching and giving presentations. Um, and so I developed some rituals around that where I just – you know, take some deep breaths, repeat the first sentence that I'm going to say a few times to kind of get into the mindset of speaking. And it has really helped me. No, it's, and you can tell, by the way, you're doing great. There's nothing, no one's ever died on the show, Juliana. So, uh, so all you got to do is relax, <laughs> oh, just relax, Juliana. Oh, sorry. Did that just stress you out? But it's, it's, it's so, it, it really is so true that our, so much of our minds just get in the way and knowing, like I've always learned, um, as a speaker, um, that I, I like my very first story or my introduction. I practice it a lot because I found that it gives me at the beginning of a speech, it gives me about however long the story is or the intro is, it gives me about 30 seconds to get a feel for myself in the room. And and mm-hmm. I, I so I do that as a ritual. I know I already know pretty much exactly what I'm going to say at the beginning of any speech I do. And I've said it so many times that I have comfort there. And but now that that's not a pregame ritual. That's the first minute of my presentation. But I just noticed that habitually that just gets me right in the space I need to get to. So I guess the performance ritual, the pre, it can happen pre-performance or even up to and in the performance. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I think that's a great point. And you just sort of triggered me to remember one other intervention that that can be really useful. And this comes sort of straight from cognitive behavioral therapy, but um, high arousal emotions like anxiety and excitement um, are easier to translate between than low arousal emotions. And so there's one um, set of work that suggests that if you can try to um, convert that anxiety into excitement, sort hmm. of a more positive yeah. <laughs> emotion, then um, that can really help people to perform better as well. And so there were these experiments where they put people into um, high anxiety situations again, um, like singing and doing math tests. And um, they just told them to say out loud to themselves, I'm excited, I'm excited, yeah. I'm excited. 
And just even the act of just saying that to yourself um, kind of got people more pumped up and felt they felt a little bit more positive about it. And yeah. so that can be impactful as well. Oh, that's great. I mean, really, that makes sense. And it changes the energy. It changes the emotion. Well, Juliana, we appreciate mm-hmm. it. Great insight uh, all around. And thank you for your research there at UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. Uh, I, I am now going to incorporate more rituals into my life. Dr. Juliana Schroeder is her name, doing great work there at UC Berkeley. Um, we'll take a break. Come back and continue the journey, folks, helping you through life one little event at a time, one ritual at a time. Stick with us. Welcome back. It's that time. To go down and be totally elevated by our two uh, favorite sportscasters around, Spencer Linton, Jerem Jordan from BYU Sports Nation, as they prepare for their show, which is in about uh, 10 minutes from now. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Sports! It's not hard to be elevated after the swining. You guys love the swining. In the world. It will bore you to death. Yeah. Hey, um... That was a really great little Ethel Merman you did there, Jerem. Oh, thank you. I mean, a lot exactly of people, what I was going for. A lot of people, you know, have lost the Ethel Merman vibrato, but you you seem to carry it very well. Thank you. Hey, question for you, gentlemen. Okay. Uh, are you guys into boxing? Conor McGregor. Are you gonna? What do you think? Uh, Conor McGregor, UFC fighter extraordinaire, is going to go toe to toe with Floyd Mayweather. Well, if it was an MMA fight, I. I've got Connor if it's a boxing match, which it is. Yeah. Uh, if you thought Manny Pacquiao was good at boxing, this is going to be a terrible fight because that was a bad fight with Mayweather. Yeah, Mayweather's going to – he's a pro. Is, McGregor's yeah. not a pro fighter. Mayweather is very McGregor's technical. McGregor's a pro fighter, but not a pro Yeah, boxer. he's a pro UFC fighter, but yeah, not a pro Mayweather boxer. He's very technical. He is very defensive. Honestly, he's a boring fighter to watch, and that will not change. Mm. It's going to take something – extravagant and lucky on McGregor's end to win that fight. If I'm McGregor, I just start like doing MMA stuff and see yeah. if the ref stops. Throwing haymakers yeah, and kicking knees <laughs> and tackle him. Flying yeah. knee. What, what about this? the same this? day as BYU Portland State, by the way, the season opener. So oh, is it really? When we do our countdown to the Vikings, yeah. I noticed on the whiteboard outside Studio 2 yeah. that you guys have that on there, which is great. Yeah, we're uh, excited for it. That it's also a countdown to McGregor Mayweather. Hey, here's a question. Do you think I think it would be more exciting if about every and it'd be random, but randomly if they ring a bell and then McGregor can actually go into UFC fighting, <laughs> but then when they ring the bell he has to stop. Oh, that would be amazing. That'd like be really to funny. alternate between MMA and yeah. boxing. Just other alternative rounds. Yeah. So odd rounds is MMA. Oh. Do but you think it's Mayweather was not gonna do the fight if it wasn't gonna be boxing? Right. Well yeah, you don't I mean he would be killed, wouldn't he? Yeah, I mean, what's what's harder for the for each guy to do the opposite? I would think McGregor. Eh, no, more skills are required to be a UFC fighter than a boxer. Oh, I think yeah, and, and so much can go wrong. Kinds of fighting, exactly, right? exactly. So um, that that's uh, that's exciting. Also, I wanted to ask you guys: Did you guys get the email I sent you? Yes. Did, I, did I you watch it? Know. You got, yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I sent the spider in the ear story. Out of India, there, there's just a story, and it's on our it's on our Twitter page at Doctor Matt Show. Um, but it's the woman had a she heard, she had a headache, 
you know, heard something in her ear, went to the doctor, oh. bada boom, bada bing, they, a spider is in her ear. So I, I want to know, I want to know what you went through, Spencer, watching the video. Uh, the 10 levels of disgust. <laughs> like, that's unbelievable. I know. Like, isn't that the craziest video you've seen in a long time? Yes. A bug in my ear, like, burrowing into my brain and yeah. giving me a headache yeah. is probably Yummy. one of the most nightmarish things I can think of. Mm-hmm. But like see, snakes, snakes don't really bother me. No. But a snake but in a your ear. a spider in the ear. Yeah. Or like an earwig in the ear. Mm-hmm. But the, the, they lured the spider out with a little light, and the spider just kept coming and just kept coming. And it was a big-eyed spider. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Nuts, man. I just thought I'd – I just wanted you guys to have that experience before you went on the air. Well, Jerem opted not to take that experience. Yeah. So Come on, Jerem. Come on. Come on. It's not Floyd, Floyd Mayweather and McGregor. Come on. Gross. Hey, what uh, – you guys are still doing your show though, right? The, uh, the spider yes, didn't gross you out. No spiders in the ear, I okay. promise. Good, good. What's on your well, show we'll today? See. We're talking never about expected. the professional drafts in all major sports. We want to know which sport BYU Sports Nation would prefer to have BYU athletes get drafted into the most. Yeah. And Why? Because it's that time of year, right? Yeah. NBA draft, NFL draft happened late April, early May. The NHL draft, Jerem's favorite. Mm. I love it. How many hockey players from oh. BYU are going to go next? Oh, lots of <laughs> hockey players from Brigham Young. Hockey. And the baseball draft just wrapped up yesterday. So which matters most mm. and why? We want to know. Plus Phil Steele, the king of college football preseason. Phil magazine. Steele. He makes the best one. Uh, he's going to be on the program today to discuss BYU football 2017. Uh, also, Tyler Haas, the all-time leading scorer in BYU basketball history, will join us. Plus, we'll update you on Cougars in the PGA. The U.S. Open starts today. Daniel Summerhays, when to see off. At Aaron Hills in the, Wisconsin. The Major League <laughs> Baseball draft happened yesterday. Two Cougars went. One significant one did not. Plus, a couple Cougars, as we speak, playing for Team USA Volleyball in Poland against Iran. We'll update you on what Ben Patch and Taylor Sander are doing. So, tons going on. Boom. Today, on Thursday, June 15th, what do we talk about in the summer? All of that stuff. Boom, roasted. Boom, <laughs> roasted. That's really good, you guys. Again, uh, you don't have to dig very deep. You guys just have such depth, you're already in the deep. We require no light to bring the spider out. No, you are like, you are like spiders deeply in the ear canal. <laughs> What? <laughs> oh. Ear piercing? You'll have you'll have to watch it, gentlemen. Okay, yeah. guys, have a great show. Knock them dead. Uh, Jerem's got to go watch the spider show because you'll never be the same. Spiders in the ear. Mm. Great Exchanging song. glances. Mm. Go to go to at uh, Doctor Matt Show, our Twitter page, to see the joy of a spider exiting an ear. Of a, a, a just a, a poor female that just happened to take a little nap out on the veranda. By the way, a rule of the Townsend Show: uh, no napping on the veranda until you get the spider sprayed for. Hey, so let's say you want to escape from prison. You want to escape from prison. Thank you. An inmate at a maximum security prison claimed he repeatedly practiced a daring escape plan involving a coffin-like box hidden under tons of sawdust that the guards would never notice 
what he was up to. Gordon Woody Mower is his name, is serving a life sentence without parole for killing his parents two decades ago. That he, uh, And he has been practicing escaping from the Auburn Correctional Facility 50 times before guards discovered his plans in 2015. Two months before con- two convicted killers cut their way out of a maximum uh, security prison in upstate New York, Mower said his plan involved being buried alive in a bottomless three-foot by four-foot wooden box under a big mound of sawdust, which is produced by the prison's woodworking shop. Uh, And then what happens is the sawdust is hauled away regularly in a tractor trailer by a local farmer who uses it as horse bedding. So the mower said the plot was failed when another inmate tipped off the guards. I would have done it. I would have been successful if it hadn't been for that meddling kid. After the truck left the prison, he said he planned to pull himself free from under the sawdust, and he said he was injured several times during dry runs. Dry sawdust runs, that is. Oh, okay. Thank you for yeah. clarifying. And uh, because the, eventually one time the box collapsed under the weight of the sawdust, but guards never noticed anything unusual. Like they don't notice a guy carrying in a coffin <laughs> where the sawdust is and then asking everyone to pile the sawdust on top of him. Come on. Pay attention. Pay attention. Attention. Anyway, thank heavens, Gordon Woody Mower is going to have to serve his time. I had a Woody Mower one time. Didn't work very well. Not a good thing. No. Not a good thing. Hey, our hero story back to uh, police officers, um, Capitol Police officers this time, Crystal Griner and David Bailey, our special agents on Representative Steve Scalise's security detail. Scalise was standing near second base in Arlington, Virginia Park, when bullets began flying from behind third base dugout, striking Scalise. While Scalise dragged himself to safety, Griner and Bailey leapt into action. In an extended firefight, the two agents took down shooter James Hodgkinson while battling through injuries of their own. Both were taken to the hospital after a gunfight and are recovering from their injuries, officials say. It was exactly the kind of bravery the agent's colleagues, friends, and family have come to expect from the pair. He is truly a hero that this tragedy has shown the public that he is. Casey Adams-Jones, a friend of Bailey's, told the Daily Beast. Adams-Jones met Bailey when they were both college students in North Carolina about a decade ago. Bailey returned home after graduation with hopes of becoming a police officer, joined the Capitol Police about eight years ago. Uh, Another friend said he definitely takes his job very seriously. He works really hard. He's committed to keeping the whip safe. Uh, That's the congressman safe and and serving the way he can. Also, um, Griner is also a a veteran. And um, really, she got shot in the ankle, I believe. These are people that had somebody firing a gun at them. And they had to distract this gunman um, while he had more ammo, a higher powered weapon. And they did it, and they saved a lot of lives. That could have gone so crazy and ugly. So congratulations to Capitol Police Officers Crystal Griner and David Bailey. You are the heroes of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. Takes bravery, doesn't it? And sometimes the the, the most bravery we need isn't uh, to fight off an enemy. Sometimes it's simply to just go home and be a mom or a dad. And uh, we hope today's show is motivated to do such a thing. Go check us out on iTunes, on Stitcher. Look us up at byuradio.org or at uh, matttownsend.com. We're everywhere. We'll be back again tomorrow. And uh, let's remember, let's make this world great together. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. BYU Sports Nation is up next.